Okay, welcome back, everyone. We're back with episode three. Here, we've got a really, really top-notch episode, a really good one for you guys. We're doing a real classic book. Not that The Hunger Games isn't a classic, but this one's a real classic. This one's a classic, but in a different way. Like, it's actually considered one. (laughs) (laughs) Unlike The Hunger Games, which isn't. Um, Yeah, I mean, we've, uh, we've got one of my favorite short novels to talk about mm. today and i guess not <laughs> not one of yours maybe perhaps not perhaps not we'll see <laughs> yeah today we're talking about the 1899 classic by joseph conrad heart of darkness it's you know a very uh, a very high school english or maybe university english <laughs> class sort of book i would say this is the kind of book that if you were given it in high school it would kill a love of reading no in its infancy maybe (laughs) yeah like it would squash the possibility of loving reading well it's interesting because it's kind of the opposite for me because (laughs) you'll remember i think that i read this book when i guess what we were 16 or 17 yeah that's when you started talking about it yeah you probably remember because i wouldn't shut up about it and you spoiled the ending (laughs) you spoiled the ending in high school Yeah, I spoiled the ending, and we're going to spoil the ending again today on the show. <laughs> I mean, I feel like the show is best if you've already read the book, right? Because we spoiled yeah. the plot of In all fact, of it. In fact, that's why at the end of these episodes, we say what the next book's going to be for the next episode. That's why we do it. Yeah, that's, that's why. We didn't just come up with that right now. Yes, we planned this out very thoroughly. Uh, we're very professional. Yeah, yes. so Heart of Darkness. Okay, we both have a bit of a history with this book. Yours is that what you just said yeah i read it when i was pretty young in high school and uh just you, because i wanted to i i wasn't assigned it or anything i just yeah. i just sort of had heard of it you got lots from it even then yeah and i loved appreciated it. it and i was by i would i would come up to you yeah, i'd bother you about it because you were the only other friend i had that read books really that yes. read novels and i was like yo you should read this this is great and uh i my history with it is that i because uh ishmael majid said this I tried to read it once and I had to give up uh, pretty fast and I was really shocked because it's so short I thought even if I don't like it I can probably get through it but um I couldn't and I I tried again after I don't actually remember it might have been in high school was it right after I was talking about it maybe like maybe like a year after and then I tried again in university I believe or maybe it was still high school a second time and it was terrible again so uh, it was terrible again and then I, the third just, time you tried you actually finished this it. this time i finally finished it and i realized that the thing i really didn't like about it was over after maybe the first three pages it's just the first three pages are so dense that i thought it's impossible to get through this because the whole book's gonna be like that so yeah third time's the charm third time is the charm i guess when it comes to this yeah no i mean and i hadn't read it for i guess like six or seven years or so there you go roughly revealing our ages (laughs) about six or seven years and i was uh it was it was a treat it was a treat i loved it it was just as good and there was was there's lots of new aspects of it that uh things i had forgot and then was like oh yeah I, i remember that yeah and then things that i had sort of missed on the first read because it is like you're saying it is a pretty dense yeah and sometimes I will ad- I will admit confusingly written book. It, it seems up- like one of those books that if you read it again, it gives back even more. It does. I would say you know, so. Yeah. Repeat readings. 
yeah, someone who's done that. I can, I'll, I'll, I will say that I agree with that. Yeah, I mean, it's it, people often say it's very ambiguous, uh, the the writing style of it, as in there's like often a lot of ways things are often communicated sort of indirectly. But I guess we'll get more into that when we get into the meat of the actual discussion on how we how we thought the what we actually thought of the book itself. But I guess we usually well, we have some segments of <laughs> of pre <laughs> preamble, some some yes. sort of uh, appetizer segments, if you will. Okay, so are we going to jump into the author spotlight or the like quick overview of the book first, mm. or the historical context? Okay, no, we'll do we'll do just a quick overview, I guess, first. Okay. So if you aren't aware, and again, I think these shows are best consumed after <laughs> having read the book. So if you haven't, I would actually recommend stopping listening to this. <laughs> Go read the book. It's short. You can read it in a day. Forget what I just said about it being dense and hard to understand in parts. Forget that. I never said that. It's short and easy to read. <laughs> I, I have a little tip for that, too. If you can't get through the first three pages because it's too dense, listen to an audiobook of it. Or listen to an audiobook. There and it's, it's easier. We're sponsored by Audible. No, we're not. <laughs> <laughs> one day. One day we will Yeah, be. one day. Uh, yeah, so go read the book. Um... We'll just, I'll just do, you know, the story just very briefly to get us up to speed is it's the story of a certain Marlowe. Uh, he's a sailor. He's on a yacht in the Thames with some friends of his, I guess. And he starts to tell them a story uh, about his time that he just spent in the Congo as sort of the captain of a steamship. He's, he's on a yacht? Yeah, a cruising, cruising yawl is a yacht. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I'm pretty sure that's what it meant. Like it's sort of an old-fashioned. It's like a, it's like a ship that is meant for the rivers. I think. It, okay. Yeah. Okay. Continue. Sorry. Yeah. Na naval history fans, please feel free to correct me if that's wrong. Uh, yacht just makes it sound like luxurious, you know. Yeah, it's maybe like you know, it's like a low-end sailing. He's boat. on a cruising yawl. A cruising yawl. The <laughs> Nelly, a cruising yawl with his friends, and he starts to tell them about his experiences uh, captaining a steamship uh, along the Congo River and sort of the, uh, the hor horrible, terrible experiences he saw, all the terrible things he witnessed as part of that journey, and especially um, the tale of how he was tasked as part of his uh, duties in the Congo with sailing upriver deep into the interior of uh, Africa to retrieve a certain agent for the company he was working for, a Mr. Kurtz, who uh, they sort of lost contact with. And the story is basically about Marlowe going deeper and deeper into the, the heart of Africa, if you will, and seeing more and more messed up stuff on his journey to try and find Mr. Kurtz. And then, of course, once he gets there, he finds out that the craziest thing of all is when he gets there and meets Mr. Kurtz himself and uh, takes away some fairly pessimistic messages from his time there uh i'd say that's yeah how's that for a summary yeah, yeah. no that's good <laughs> yeah that's, that's essentially good. the story as it were it's a very simple story on its surface yes and even even below the surface maybe uh, yeah it's not fairly a, straightforward the actual events of it aren't that you know they're kind of prosaic and not that much. I mean, they're kind of they're kind of messed up as well, but <laughs> not that much happens in terms of events. Like it's almost if you if you explained it as a plot summary to someone, they would be like, "Oh, okay." What's this? It's yeah. just it's just that, yeah. you know. But I think the way it's written does a lot to sort of impart a 
the way it's written, it's almost like it almost takes on a mythical quality, like or like a fable, like even to the extent that there are some allusions to classical myths and fables of the past, like uh, the women in black that uh, Marlowe meets in Brussels, who are allusions to the Greek fates, the fates, the Moirai in Greek mythology. But anyway, that's uh, neither here nor there. He's going on this journey, you know, not, it's not merely a journey up a river into the wilderness. Well, we'll get to that later, I guess. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we'll do, we're just supposed to summarize the plot there. Right, yeah. right. That's been done. That's been done. <laughs> Check that off the list. <laughs> What do we? What, what, what's next? You're the one who okay, so, wants the segments. Um, well, we just did the overview. Maybe either author spotlight or yeah, historical let's do, context. Yeah, let's 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 do the author. The author one's going to be long, though. Is my is my guess? Yeah. So should I do the history? You want to do the historical context first? Well, the problem is you've got all these, so uh, there's going to be no back and forth. So you might as well just do whichever one. Uh, you think would be suitable to go yeah right we're gonna, let's do the author context sure. first um so yeah so this book heart of darkness was written by one joseph conrad who was a pretty well-known author especially now sort of one of the one of the major authors of the sort of turn of the last century late 19th early 20th century um yeah he had a pretty interesting life uh and i guess i'll talk a bit about that what's his what's his real name well, I was gonna, yeah. So, yeah. Well, I'm gonna talk about his life, and I'll get to his oh, full real okay, name as, as part of that. But I just wanted to say before I start that uh, you'll you'll see that there are parallels. This book is largely based on his own experiences uh, that he had, and he said, I think something like, I wish I had the exact quote, but he said something like, "Heart of Darkness is uh, basically the real facts that I saw exaggerated only slightly." You know, that's not the exact quote. He said it better. He was <laughs> he was much more eloquent than I am, but uh, but yeah. So we'll get into his life. He was a pretty crazy life. Out of all the author spotlights, out of all the three, <laughs> the second one barely that we barely even talked yeah. about. This one I think is the most crazy so far. It's our first male as well. It is our first male author. That's crazy. Yeah. Okay, so Joseph Theodore Konrad Korzeniowski as his full name was, Polish people, hopefully that was okay, my pronunciation, <laughs> was born in 1857 in the city of Berdyshev, which uh, was had formerly been part of Poland, but was at that time part of the Russian Empire. He was from a Polish family. Uh, his family was part of the Polish like nobility, actually. So a pretty well-off family, at least at first. And at the time he was born... Poland uh, was not an independent country. In fact, uh, like more than 50 years before his birth, Poland had been sort of divided up between a bunch of other countries, Russia, Austria mostly, and Germany later. Uh, and yeah, but most of it went to Russia. So you can essentially say that at the time he was, living, uh, he was born and grew up, Poland was being ruled over by Russia. And the fact that Conrad came from a country that was occupied or you might even say colonized by an imperialist power well let's just say that 
it might have had an effect on his views uh, about the broader phenomenon of imperialism and what the idea of one country going in and occupying the lands of another people. Let's just uh, keep that thought in the back of our minds as we proceed. Um, and his dad, Conrad's dad, Apollo Pajanyowski, was a very active member of the sort of underground Polish independence movement. Uh, he would write pamphlets and stuff, and he even literally helped organize an armed uprising. And as you might imagine, the authorities weren't too keen on this, and so he was actually arrested and sent into exile in 1861 when Yosef was just four years old. And he went with his dad, him and his mom went with his dad, to a city Vologda in the far north of Russia, which you can imagine was pretty cold and miserable. <laughs> And his mom, Conrad's mom, uh, Ava, died of tuberculosis when Conrad was eight or seven or eight during this exile. So then while all this time they were living in the far north of Russia, his dad uh, tried to make them some money. He translated English and French books into, I guess, Polish and maybe Russian. Uh, you know, you have to get some money. And this is apparently Conrad's first exposure to English. He didn't learn English, he, but he read his dad's translations of Shakespeare and, and Dickens and stuff. Uh, and the kid loved reading a lot. He read Polish literature. He read French literature. Uh, yeah. But uh, shortly after the exile with his dad uh, ended, the two moved to Krakow. Uh, but at the age of 11, Conrad's father also died of tuberculosis. So at 11 years old, he was orphaned. Oh, my God. At 11? Um, yeah. yeah, at 11 years old. Pretty rough childhood, all things considered. But after that, he was raised by his uncle, Tadish Bobrovsky. Sorry, Polish people, once again. He <laughs> <laughs> was a lawyer, and he took good care of little Yosef, and he sent him to school in Krakow and then also in Switzerland. Uh, but Jude, he didn't, Yosef didn't like school very much. <laughs> That's how you say it. It's Yosef. <laughs> you can see you're laughing at me. <laughs> he didn't like school that much. He loved reading, but he didn't enjoy like school subjects. He kind of liked geography, but he liked reading and especially his favorite genre of books to read were stories of adventure on the high seas oh let me guess did he look at maps of unexplored parts okay. of africa yes and also there is a story for there's literally is this is true okay. there's a story from his childhood where apparently uh little yosef looked at a map of africa pointed at it and said when i grow up i will go there huh. apparently it is kind of the sort of thing that you would make up later <laughs> after the fact so i don't know if that's true 100 but it's a story that gets circulated a lot okay but he loved reading about stories of of adventure on the high seas so as soon as he was done with school in 1874 he was like i'm going to become a sailor his uncle was bobrovsky he didn't think it was a great idea but he still was like nice enough to give him like an annual like uh, allowance to be like, okay, get yourself started with this. I'll, I'll let you leave the country and go become a sailor. And I think he even gave him a contact with a French merchant company in Marseille. 
to get him started. So was... his uncle was like, I don't know about this whole sailing business, but I let the kid give it a shot, I guess. Can I, wait, can I just ask, um, like his upbringing, was he, was his family middle class? Like... Well, his family were part of the nobility. Oh. But he had a rough childhood because they was getting exiled all the time i know but does that mean that they like freeze your assets and you know oh i don't know oh okay. but i mean his dad had to be, was making translations of books to get money so I, f I imagine i imagine it was kind of a hard scrabble upbringing but yet they're like very educated yes that's okay. what i would say sort of educated but not doing well okay i think his uncle was doing okay because he was able to support him financially and stuff but he has parents because they were sort of in and out of exile all the time. <laughs> it's hard to be successful. I think they own land, but maybe they had that confiscated. Kind of seems that way. Yeah. But I didn't make a positive claim, so Conrad scholars don't come after me. <laughs> <laughs> you always say that. Don't Last time you were like Suzanne Collins. <laughs> don't come fans after don't me. Don't come after me. Like there's no one's coming after you. <laughs> yeah. Well, you never know, right? You never know in this day and age. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so... Um, what is that supposed to mean? <laughs> it's easy to find people's information, I guess. Is that what I was I getting at? Is that what I was getting at? <laughs> this is getting cut. This is getting cut this for sure. This is probably getting cut. Okay, yeah, so sailor. He decided to become a sailor. Can I, can I just say, based on uh, the first few pages, which were painful to get through, I after reading it, I, I actually did feel this, like, jealousy for sailors and people who live that kind of life because of just the the complete respect and like uh the way that they view that you know pursuit as like such a vocation and such a calling mm. it's kind of i don't know admirable or something that is to be yeah. envied i don't know just the way that sea people sailors sea people. talk about the ocean and like and like living the romance of it yeah yeah like it really seems like it's something that they're that like sort of meant to do to... Yeah. yeah well it seems like jealous that of it. for conrad for sure it seems like he was sort of drawn to a life at sea from a young age yeah i get that for sure yeah in the first pages when they're describing the the golden hind and the erebus and terror and all that yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking more just like the descriptions of the water and I don't know. I don't remember anymore. Yeah. But just the impression it left was just like they all have such reverence for for what they the do. Sort of code of the, the yeah, men and like, of the sea. <laughs> also, this may have also been influenced by the submersible stuff uh, that happened in recent Oh, the know, current events. You can bring up the Titanic. <laughs> and then it, it, it made me do this rabbit hole deep dive on the on mariners the crew of the titanic like the, oh, actual, the actual titanic, titanic. and just people who devote their lives to the sea and they understand, you know, it's not something to be toyed with. It's just a cool life. This is getting cut. Maybe we'll do Moby Dick next. <laughs> no, we will absolutely not. <laughs> Even though his name is Ishmael, yeah, we're not doing it's it. It's about the sea. Uh, okay, so, uh, yeah, so Conrad wanted to be, yeah, he became a sailor, 1874, which would make him 17? Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> I guess that's that's when he started back then. I mean, lots of people in the 1800s, they'd go to sea when they were like 12. Um, so, yeah, he went to Marseille in France and joined a merchant company. His first voyages were mostly trips to the Caribbean. Apparently, he, as part of this French merchant company, he was involved in 
gun running to rebels in Spain or something like that. Oh. It's hard to hard to get details on that, but almost all the sources mention it. So, huh. uh, yeah. Con- Conrad scholars, email us more details about the gun running to <laughs> rebels in Spain, because that sounds pretty interesting. Uh, and I think he later wrote a similar experience. Or maybe the rebels are in the Caribbean, but I think I did some research... Use the term. Anyway, this is getting cut. <laughs> okay, well, if it's getting cut, can I just ask, what what is the what's the war? The Spanish Civil they, they War. They say it was the Carlist Rebellion, which oh. was an attempt to put a certain guy named Carlos, Carlos, I think Charles, on the Spanish throne. I see. And, yeah, and I'm, I looked. I was like, was there fighting in the Caribbean? It looks like there wasn't. Maybe there was fighting in the Caribbean. Okay. But anyway, maybe, maybe they're just citing each other those those sources like there's no original there must be some kernel like why would they make that i know but if you if you did research onto all these different secondary sources and they all just barely mention it yeah i could have done more research on the carlist rebellion but i tried to narrow my scope to conrad stuff specifically anyway so possible gun running let's just put it under uh and so at this point conrad was a young lad and you know he did a bunch of slightly debauched not that debauched but slightly debauched things he gambled he accumulated a lot of debts and prostitutes like, well none of them mentioned that but i'm not going to so, i'm not going to say i'm not going to say one way or the other <laughs> he might come after me for libel just think this of guy the song lovely ladies from Les Mis. Oh my God. And you can fill in the blanks <laughs> with your imagination. Yeah. Well, anyway, he, he was, his papers were out of order because he was, I guess, an immigrant in France. And they once they found that out, I guess they said he wasn't allowed to keep sailing because like, he didn't have the right paperwork or something. No. So he was so distraught about that. He basically had to, you know, sit around in Marseille gambling all day and accumulating debts. He fell into a depression and he actually attempted suicide. But luckily, he survived, uh, and shortly thereafter, in 1878, so he's 21 at this point, still young, so young, literally younger than younger us. Than us. Yeah. <laughs> he decided, I'm going to switch. I'm going to switch things up. Uh, enough of France. I'm going to be a British sailor now. He didn't speak English at the time, but he was just like, I'm going to go <laughs> sail on English ships. Par- possibly, he was also. Uh, liable to be conscripted into the French Navy or something that I've seen that come up. Apparently French sailors, even I guess illegal immigrants, were liable to be conscripted. I don't know. But whatever his reasoning, what maybe just wanted to change the scenery, he switched to British service. And as a, you know, he sailed in British ships for the next few decades and, you know, rose up the ranks. You know, he was from a common sailor to like a master's mate, master, etc. And he was, you know, in British service. This is the time when, you know, they had their whole empire thing going on. So he went all around the British Isles, Turkey, Australia, Thailand, India, Singapore, uh, what's now Indonesia, all over the place. Um, and and uh, in uh, one of these trips, I think one of the trips to Indonesia, uh, there was a, a journey where Conrad uh, got a ship caught in a typhoon. He had a collision with another ship. Uh, there were desertions from the crew. And then finally, the coal in the, that was powering the ship caught fire. And everyone, oh. they all had to abandon the ship and use rowboats. And they had to row for like 13 hours before they reached landfall off of uh, Sumatra. 
hmm. apparently. So he saw some crazy stuff in his life as a sailor, it's fair to say. And in 1886, he started, uh, he got his first command as captain of a ship. And he also became a British subject in that year. So a British national, British citizen, basically. Uh, yeah. And in 1889, he started working on his first book, All Myers Folly, apparently. I haven't read it. <laughs> oh, is it published? Yeah, it, it oh. came out. I haven't read it, though. <laughs> no, me neither. But he started working on his first book. But before he could finish it, I, maybe he finished it, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know actually if he finished it or not. In 1890, he went on another a very important sailing trip, you might say. I mean, it's not really that <laughs> you might say is for it being important. It's not. I mean, it definitely was a sailing trip. So specifically, uh, probably because he wanted to make a bit more money between, you know, because he wasn't. He was living off, I think, his uncle's uh, allowances between trips. Like, he, I think he burned through his sailing money pretty quickly. Uh, so to make a bit more money, he took up a job and possibly to fulfill a sense of adventure that he'd had since he was a young child. If Probably we're to, for both reasons. Maybe a bit of both. Yeah. Could, could well be a bit of both. He uh, went to Brussels to get a job as a steamboat captain in, drumroll please, the Congo. <laughs> And it's largely from this trip that Heart of Darkness is based on his on his actual experiences in the Congo. So readers of the book will find it interesting to note that en route, he witnessed a French warship firing shells into a jungle along the coast. Oh. That once he got to the Congo, he replaced uh, the former captain of, the sh of a steamship who was a Danish guy. Hmm. Um... Yeah, and he just, uh, those things will seem a little familiar to people who've read the book. Did did he meet a mentally unstable <laughs> that, ivory uh, I think that might, that might be, you know, when he said the facts exaggerated a bit. I think a lot, <laughs> I think a lot of the Kurt stuff might be the exaggerated a bit part. <laughs> but he, I mean, he did see all sorts of, you know, pretty awful stuff going on in the Congo. We'll get to that later when we talk a bit about the historical context, but uh, he seems to have been very deeply affected by this trip, uh, by the brutality and sort of greed of the the various colonizing forces in the Congo. Uh, he was, yeah, he was pretty horrified by, by what he saw and almost traumatized, you might say, and he came back with a very sort of pessimistic probably had a pessimistic streak to him anyway but i think this helped develop it and this pessimism would sort of make itself felt in in his works as one of his major sort of trademarks uh and he also described a lot of how isolated he felt you know because he would go he'd be on in the congo and he'd be going up in this steamboat and there would be like days where he wouldn't even see a single village on the other side and it would just be him and the crew and this is also a theme that is pretty common in a lot of his works. The, the you, you talked about how awesome Life at Sea is, but a lot <laughs> of his works, so I'm told, I mean, I've, I've actually I've only read this one book by him. I haven't read any other books by Conrad. But I'm told that a lot of the other books he wrote sort of explore the theme of isolation that mm. comes with a life at sea. So uh, he did a few more... Um, sailing trips after the Congo uh, for the next, couple of, the next couple of years. But in 1894, after his uncle Bobrovsky died, and so he wouldn't get his allowance anymore, and 
um, after he published Elmire's Folly in 1895, and it actually did pretty well, Conrad essentially decided those two things together would make him decide it's time for career change. Uh, he sort of retired as a sailor and decided to become a full-time writer instead. He quickly realized that Karzhenyovsky was too difficult for most British people to pronounce, so he went under the pen name Joseph Conrad. Um, yeah, he married an English woman, Jessie George, in 1896, and had some kids, two sons, supposedly, uh, and basically spent the rest of the, his time writing. Uh, the late 19, 19th century and first sort of decade of the 20th century is when he wrote most of the works that uh, are sort of uh, most his most famous works today. So works like Lord Jim. Lord Jim, which is also... I've got no idea what that is. Lord Jim, I have to say... Lord Jim? <laughs> Lord Jim is also ha- narrated by Marlowe, apparently. Oh! So it's part of the like, Conrad so it's ex- like Extended Hercule Universe. <laughs> it's like the Conrad Extended Universe, you might say. Wow. <laughs> I thought that was crazy. I'm like, whoa, he's in... <laughs> there's a whole cinematic universe here waiting to be made. Or not. Well, I don't know. What, what about his other books? Yeah, I don't think he's in any other ones. Oh. There's there's Youth, which is, a, I think, a collection of stories in which Heart of Darkness was one of them. A book called Typhoon, a book called Nostromo. Oh, Nostromo, yeah. I uh, know that one. Nostromo apparently has allusions to the gun running oh. stuff. There's another one that was named I'm not going to say, but let's just say okay. for a similar reason as Agatha Christie had one of her titles changed. <laughs> oh, I learned about that today. Yeah. I learned about that today. And then there were none. Re- no, listeners, okay. <laughs> listeners, look up look up the original title. Didn't of, we say that in our first episode? Didn't we talk about this in our first episode? I feel like we did, right? It's possible, but I, I must forget. have at least made a joke. Where it was like, and then there were none previously another name. Oh my God, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so, but yeah, so, you know, his books were largely to deal with life at sea and similar themes. In 1899, he first published Heart of Darkness in a magazine, a literary magazine, and then it came out later in 1902 as part of a three volume. I guess three short stories packaged into one kind of a deal. Um, I think according to Wikipedia, it did not do well in his lifetime. Well, I was going to say that, so overall, Conrad was pretty well regarded in his own lifetime. His books are sort of seen as sort of nautical adventure stories at the time. Um, And they did okay. There was an appetite for that sort of thing at the time. And later on in his life, he kind of wrote like almost like spy fiction books about like political intrigue. And those actually did really well, even though they're pretty forgotten today. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, he was sort of not struggling, but like just doing all right for the first few, uh, first sort of decade of his life. But then eventually he became pretty successful. Um, but uh, yeah, out of all of his books, though, yeah, I would say that. Uh, well, I'll just finish by saying that, yeah, he died in 1924, age 66, of heart failure. Oh. That's nice. At but least he managed... it wasn't uh, tuberculosis. Like, yeah, he like broke both the of his family parents. curse, yeah. He managed to visit Poland a couple more times uh, in his life, which is nice. Uh, I think he went in 1914 or something. Anyway, so that's that. That's the life. Pretty crazy life. Very eventful, I would say. I, uh, um, when I was reading his Wikipedia... Um, like glancing over it 
Um, I also saw that his wife was considered kind of like an unsophisticated. Right, she was like a working class lady. Yeah, and and or not his, lady, let's say. His peer group of you know intellectuals uh, like, were not you, impressed with like, her. They're like, what do you see in this random like <laughs> working class girl? Like, what's going on? Yeah, and Who's... he he hobnobbed with uh, other literary figures who are still significant oh, to yeah? this day such as i don't know i think <laughs> I, don't know. I think henry i think henry james seems was right. one of them seems about but right. um as for the rest i forget awesome well done because <laughs> <laughs> the the author spotlight is not my expertise but yeah, i was gonna say like the books that were sort of well received and popular in his lifetime are pretty different from the ones that are most paid attention to today like, I'd say today, Heart of Darkness is, like, far and away his most famous I think it's book. the only enduring The one only one that you'd expect people to know. In Yeah, like, in pop culture. Yeah. yeah. Uh, whereas at the time, you're right, it was not considered one of his major works. He didn't consider it one of his major works. And, like, it was published in a three, like, volume set with two other stories. And apparently, out of all the three of them, Heart of Darkness was the one that people cared about the least you know oh right yeah. yeah i heard that too that's why i mentioned the whole three volume story thing but uh after his death like decades later starting in like the 40s and 50s when people started taking a more like psychological psychoanalytic uh approach to analyzing literature that's when uh people started to pick up on themes that uh people at the time didn't really pay much attention to in the conrad stories especially the themes of isolation, the like the, the pessimism about the sort of inner darkness of human nature that we'll get a lot into later when we start talking about the book in earnest. Um, and for that, I think that's why Heart of Darkness became sort of his most uh, well-regarded book after that, because out of all of them, it, I think, does the best job uh, at encapsulating those themes, he says, having read none of his other books. <laughs> 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 but there must have been a reason right it's it's reputation speaks for itself there you go yeah. uh so yeah that's joseph conrad okay Pretty cool guy yeah although yeah. i don't know if i'd like to you know it, it would, would he be a nightmare to talk to but I, I, apparently he was pretty quiet and reserved so i don't think he'd be he wouldn't be one of those guys who's like an artist who's like really pessimistic who's like talking about it all the time all, all of the people who's, uh, who, like, their people's impressions of him yeah, on his Wikipedia page, nice. you know. Um, like he was, was like a that, quiet, Yeah, he was shy. quiet and, and that he, like, had these, like, weird, like, moments of connection with them where they, like, felt a lot of compassion for him. But he was very Polish. Very reserved, sort of cold, I, I don't steely know. guy. I, I, don't even, I don't even know about that, but they were just, like... Yeah, he's got a Polishness to him. <laughs> yeah. Is that just some commenting that he spoke with an accent? But he must have, right? <laughs> I, I think it's like the, it was something about his mannerisms. Like he was he... always eating pierogies. <laughs> <laughs> like you can take the boy out of Poland, but you can't take Poland out of the <laughs> Pretty Poland. Pretty much. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's worth mentioning. Like English was not even his second language, but his third language. Did I say mannerisms? Because I meant sensibilities. Okay, like it's pretty similar. Like he's got. Oh, I can't believe you, know. you said mannerisms <laughs> instead of sensibility. Well, mannerisms, that implies like his that movements is, or is. something. Yeah. But I just mean like, you right. know, he's got the mind of a pole. 
Yeah, who else? What, what, what do you expect? He was born Well, raised, I don't know. He, he kind of seems there. like he's he called him, a he, smattering of nationalities. He called himself point. homo duplex to be both Polish and English. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And I think, I think Rudyard Kipling said of him that even though he was one of the best English language writers of his time, of our, you know, our time, he said, he was... He brought a very un-English sensibility to his works, which is maybe why part of the appeal. I don't know. Yeah. That's him. He would know Rudyard Kipling. He's like the most English guy who ever lived. You know, <laughs> but, like based on Heart of Darkness, I would never have thought he was Polish. It kind of seems like an English guy wrote it. Well, because I guess the character Marlowe is, but it's it's so impressive, eh, that like... That he, he wrote, learned English. Was, he learned yeah. English when he was like 20. And then he wrote and then he a became, classic like, with it considered one of the best english like stylists at, at the time yeah. people even at the time people were saying like his prose his style is so great and it's his third language after french he learned when he was a kid i mean yeah. it's crazy man yeah i wish i just knew one other language nice <laughs> all right <laughs> but uh yeah that's his life that's okay. joseph conrad what do we do next? This is now first impressions. Oh no! Wait, what? wait. We wanted to do historical context. Oh shit! Because okay. it's act. I thought I was really giving it to you to tell to say that. <laughs> I was expecting you were to say now we'll do historical. I know. Context. Well, I was trying to remember. What, okay, we're gonna have to cut like half of this episode so far. <laughs> at, at, at least. <laughs> <laughs> I know we are off our game today. Yeah. No, I think we're on our game. So. uh... I think it is worth discussing. I, I usually we do like questions about historical context at the end or whatever. Like that's what we did with Agatha Christie. But yeah. uh, maybe put your phone on silent. <laughs> uh, that's what we did with her at least. And um, but in this case, I think it's important that we, you know, talk a little bit about the historical context yes. before we talk about the book because think, it's yes. very important to the it's story. It's important to set the scene as well because. I found, and I've said this before too off uh, mic, but uh, after finishing Heart of Darkness, my understanding and appreciation of it was enriched by reading secondary sources afterwards and then retroactively applying them to what I knew to be like the book. And like, was the historical I, context part of that? Yes, it was definitely part of that. And I kind of wish that I had... Um, gone in primed with that knowledge instead of applying it retroactively. So that's good. So yeah, yeah, I'll just give a brief overview of some, you know, the history of essentially, uh, you know, the history of colonialism in the Congo region, because it's pretty important for understanding the setting and some of the major themes of the book. So Heart of Darkness takes place in the Congo, uh, what's basically now would be the Democratic Republic of the Congo, um, at a time when essentially it was just uh, beginning to be uh, under uh, European colonization. So essentially the story goes, it's pretty well known that most of Africa was part of various European empires uh, in the 19th century. How it worked was essentially at the late 19th century in the 1880s, a bunch of European countries got together and decided like, okay, we have to decide who gets what parts of Africa. And the question of whether or not they ought to do that was not <laughs> discussed. They were like, well, 
we have all this technology. We can easily take over large parts of Africa. So who gets what? <laughs> and, you know, the British, the French, Germany, Italy, all these countries were like trying to carve up pieces of it. And one of one, one country you might not really expect, given it's sort of a small out of the way place to have played a role was Belgium, specifically the king of Belgium, a certain Leopold II. He was quite into the whole idea of getting his small country a colony uh, because he could see that they could be quite profitable and they gave a lot of prestige. And so he went to uh, this conference of all these European countries called the Berlin Conference uh, in the 1880s. And he said, you know, uh, okay, like maybe I could maybe get uh, this giant chunk of the middle of Africa, please, the Congo, for me, for me, not even for Belgium, you see. Because he was the king of Belgium, but he was like, actually, I don't need Belgium to rule it. I just want to have it, me, myself. He wants, he wants a private vacation Yeah, spot. although he never visited the Congo, but yeah. He wants a private place to extract rubber and ivory, essentially. Um, so, But he went to the conference and he said, oh, and you know, if you give me the Congo, what I'll do is I'll be so nice. I'll like help the people. I'll bring them civilization. I'll build railways. You know, I'll get rid of slavery. I'll do all this good stuff. And then, you know, the people at the Berlin conference were like, okay, fine. If you're, you know, if you're going to be a nice guy about it and improve the lives of the people like that. And also maybe the ulterior motive of if small Belgium has the center of Africa, then our big powerful rivals, France, or our big powerful rivals, Britain, say, won't get it. That might have also played a part, let's say. But anyway, so they decide that Belgium gets to uh, rule, well, not actually not even Belgium, <laughs> just King Leopold <laughs> the second of Belgium, gets to rule over the Congo, this vast area, essentially in the very center of Africa, full of like dense rainforests. And essentially the area um, around the Congo River, which is one of these largest rivers sort of in the world. I mean, not the largest river in the world. That's the Nile. But uh, it's up there. It's like a really great big river. And that was sort of the basis. And so basically... Uh, the King Leopold established this colony called the Congo Free State or the Independent State of the Congo, l'État indépendant du Congo in French. Um, but I guess in English they call it the Congo Free State, even though independent state is more of a literal translation. But anyway, uh, he established the Congo Free State and it was a colony, again, not even a Belgian colony, but he just a colony of him. And he said, he also, I think he said something like, European countries will all get free trade. So like any company from Europe will get access to it. That, might as well, that was also part of the pitch. That's also probably part of the reason why everyone is pretty happy to give him the Congo. And so, yeah, like agents of uh, various European companies started going in to extract resources, primarily ivory. And then later on, actually rubber became the main one. Because this is the time when bicycles were just invented and cars were just invented. And so rubber was actually becoming pretty valuable for things like wheels, as well as like insulating, covering for wires, all sorts of stuff. How do you extract rubber? So it grows in, tr it's, it's, it's part of, the, I think it's part of the resin of certain trees. And also it, I think the kind from the Congo is part of the resin of a certain type of vine. Oh my god botanists don't come at me <laughs> <laughs> this is a very i don't i'm not an expert on rubber extraction but it comes from plants essentially is, is rubber a naturally occurring substance or is it yeah then, but is you it gotta, turned into rubber you but... gotta like do stuff to it i know but would you extract rubber or do you extract like 
some sort of other thing called like rubber rubberous or something and then you and then you chemically (laughs) reduce it to rubber pretty sure it's not rubberous but (laughs) i would imagine you have to change it a little bit but okay don't quote me on I'm, that. I'm literally picturing a tree that's got like tires, tires. growing out. It's of not it. that. It's definitely not that. I think it's like a kind of resin, like I said. Okay. Um. So anyway, but but the, the let's say the raw components of rubber were one okay. of the big ones. Uh. And so uh, he had this sort of paramilitary police force, the Force Publique, who would go around and. But basically, what they did was they like made it so that each village of Congolese people would be like given a quota like you have to give us this much ivory or later on this much rubber and if they didn't meet the quota then like people would either be like killed maimed people would have their families kidnapped sometimes like people would have their wives and children kidnapped and then be like okay well until you get the quota we're going to keep your family hostage uh one common uh form of punishment that was sort of emblematic of the belgian congo was the severing of hands they would yeah. cut people's hands off if they failed to meet the quotas. Um, and yeah, and this, you know, the, the the paramilitary forces were extremely brutal, very, very exploitative. Like, they basically pushed the population, like, to the edge of, like, you know, death. And in many cases, people did die just from overwork, from being killed, for not meeting quotas, um, because, you know... Uh, of starvation because of the working conditions all sorts of things probably millions of people it's hard to know for sure but the death toll was in like the millions and so this is probably the most brutal and the most exploitative of all the european colonies in africa so this is actually also um the first example of a sort of human rights scandal or human rights movement because this sort of stuff actually became well known because it was it was like the 1890s and 1900s. So journalists would go to the Congo. There was like a famous American journalist who went to the Congo and reported on what he saw. Uh, certain government personnel, like a, a guy named Roger Casement, who was the British government sort of representative in the Congo Free State, he kind of saw what was going on. He wrote this report about all the horrible things that were going on in the Congo and brought it to the attention of the British public. This is before Heart of Darkness came out? So it's actually around the time. Heart of Darkness is one of these things because Conrad had gone in the 1890s. He'd seen all this terrible stuff and he was, he wrote the story based on his personal experiences. And part of his motivation was to sort of bring light to what was happening in the Congo. And a lot of famous people were actually part of sort of an international movement to sort of uh, bring this stuff to light and end the atrocities going on in the Congo. So a lot of famous people were part of it. Conrad himself, perhaps unsurprisingly, um, but also some other famous authors. Arthur Conan Doyle was a member. Mark Twain was not only a member, but he was a pretty scathing critic of the... He wrote a lot about this issue, and he wrote about the you know, mistreatment going on in the Congo. So yeah, it was this whole, like, it was probably the first sort of major, you know, human rights uh, case that was well known across the world. And eventually the pressure was so much that King Leopold was basically pressured and forced to give up personal rule of the Congo. And then the, the reason I've been stressing it was not a Belgian colony. It was personally ruled by King Leopold because the solution was that the government of Belgium took over. Oh. Yeah. And 
things imp- things improved after that? Yeah, I mean they did. I mean, you know, not you know, in there it wasn't perfect or anything, but it was a lot less brutal, let's say, than it was, because like it was no under the Congo Free State, basically the whole thing was set up to try and get as much like raw materials as possible out of the country, like building railways but like only railways that went to the coast to ship away ivory and all that and like the quotas and the sort of the brutality of the false public was like so extreme during the congo free state whereas under the belgian congo was just sort of an average average colony like an average european colony in africa which is to say you know not perfect or anything but a lot lot a lot less brutal. no more no more killings. like very yeah no more like maiming of hands and you know they tried a little bit to actually like build some schools and hospitals and stuff i'm not an expert on this stuff but i think it's fair to say like a lot less bad <laughs> okay i didn't know any of this well n- not none but this i i had a lot less context even after even until this very moment i had a lot less context (laughs) until you just explained all that so i don't know if all of that was necessary to know going into it or or is it i don't think it is but i think it helps okay to know what was going on i mean it puts the story in context right like the idea that there is a state where basically uh you know trading companies of rubbery and ivory were given free reign to do whatever they want be extremely brutal to the population and i i yeah, i didn't know about anything with the king leopold yeah because uh, he's not mentioned his in the personal book. rule or anything like that yeah yeah but yeah i don't think that's necessarily no i just essential i just i just i just um emphasized that point because to have the story end with and then the belgian government took over people might be confused like weren't they already Oh, I see. Okay. If I say the king of Belgium ran this place, then I'm like, and then it ended when Belgium took over. If I didn't make it clear that it was personal, I feel like people may be confused. Like, wasn't it always Belgium? You know? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I emphasize Was it. it mentioned in the book? Um, Was what mentioned in the book? Like, oh, then Belgium took over. No, because at the time of, of the book's writing, that hadn't happened yet. Oh, okay. Belgian, the okay. Belgian government took over in 1908, I believe. And this book was written in 1899. Why did I think this book was written in 1904? Well, either way, <laughs> it was before 1908, but it's 1899. Okay. Yeah. Maybe that was when it came out in the three-volume edition. I think you wrote to me that it came out in 1904. Well, I was wrong. It's in <laughs> Facebook Messenger. Oh, God, exposing me. <laughs> 1899. I've got is, the receipts. Yeah, 1899 is the actual date. Okay, so okay, that's so the historical that's, background. That's setting the scene. Yeah. We're 50 minutes into the pod and we haven't gotten to uh, the story yet. I mean, another three hours. <laughs> <laughs> this, who would think that this tiny, tiny novella would equal what... I am going to assume it's going to be over two hours of airtime. Almost certainly. Yeah. Okay. We'll trim. Let's, we'll trim let's start place. this. Let's start this thing. Okay. Let's get into the meat of the discussion. Let's take a journey. Let's journey <laughs> up river, as it were. Let's take a journey. Into the heart into... of the story. <laughs> God. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, have I killed you with that joke? <laughs> I was trying to set up something else, but I, I think it was even worse okay so let's start with first impressions 
Well, it wasn't my first time, so you start with first impressions. Oh, true. Okay, so you can give your first impressions of the second time reading. You give, your ac- you give your actual first impressions. Okay, my first impressions are very superficial. Um, the first one is um, that this book has no chill. Uh, yes. <laughs> from a narrative standpoint, but also um, like the the descriptions have no chill, and yeah. the reflection has no chill. Like the mm-hmm. the lessons that Marlo takes from all these experiences are super intense, and yes. the actual act of just describing them are also super intense. Even when it comes to things as seemingly benign as nature. Um, so on page 21 of my edition, uh, which I'm not even going to mention because it's not worth it. Um, this is the direct quote in and out of the rivers, streams of death in life, whose banks were rotting into mud, whose waters thickened into slime invaded the contorted mangroves that seemed to writhe at us in the extremity of an impotent despair. That's That's just one little description. It's great. (laughs) What he sees while he's on his little steamboat. So the guy knows how to write a sentence. Yeah, no, for sure. But um, it is right. It has no no chill. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and uh, I I was also admiring, um, or you know, taken aback at later on. You know, at the end of the book, he uh, his reflections on you know just life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're pretty equal in uh, intensity um, to the previous quote. So this one is on page 101, mm. and he says, Marlowe says, My destiny, droll thing life is, that mysterious arrangement of merciless logic for a futile purpose. That's, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. It, I think that's why... Uh, reading this is such an intense and you know dense. That's his takeaway of what life is. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. just yeah. He's not even saying it's bad. Well, kinda, he kind of is futile, saying it's bad, but purpose. he's just kind of saying this with the tone of like, oh, funny thing life is, or droll yeah. thing life is. That's maybe a coping mechanism. Yeah, that's just him being a nineteenth-century man. He has to say it that way. <laughs> Yeah. What did so, I say about Mockingjay? It's delightfully cynical. Yes. I mean, this... I know. This, this is makes that... Mockingjay look like uh, it's a wonderful life. Oh, good. That's good. Now we've got to put that in the description of this episode. <laughs> a book that makes Mockingjay look like it's a wonderful life. Comparing a book to a movie. No, nah, it's good. It's good. Okay. Like it. So, yeah, that was... Uh, I think the fact that it was so, um, you know, overbearing in this way kind of contributes to why it feels like uh, getting through this is so difficult. It takes a really long time. Like the passages are extremely dense. Um, the paragraphs last for pages, literal pages. Um, <laughs> so the text is like this wall. <laughs> Mm, and um i just found the first few pages like like, a wall of trees on either side of the river congo yeah impenetrable some some might say like that yeah and the first few pages are insurmountably boring oh i disagree okay (laughs) we'll we'll get into it later and and i i just want to i just want to the one line that made me almost quit for the (laughs) third time reading this book um was on as early as page eight um, the narrator reflects, 
But Marlow was not typical if his propensity to spin yarns be accepted, and to him the meaning of an episode was not inside like a kernel, but outside, enveloping the tale which brought it out only as a glow brings out a haze, haze yeah. in the likeness of one of these misty halos that sometimes are made visible by the spectral illumination of moonshine. His remark did not seem at all surprising. Uh, what? It sets up the story that's to come. I know, but if so you're just reading that the matter, first time... It's not a simple matter of, oh, we've got um, an outer meaning and an inner meaning. <laughs> know, but... it's, more like, it's more like in the telling of the story, in the telling of it and all its complicated, ambiguous, sort of dense language, all you can do is sort of try to sort of bring shed a little light on this haze of his experience of what he's learned. Yes. It sets up the story very it, nicely. It, it, maybe it does, but I don't even understand what it's saying. <laughs> like, it, you know, these sentences are supposed to function on two levels, and the first is just the basic level of you understand, you know, <laughs> what, it's, what it's literally saying before understanding the like second meaning. Like shining light meaning. On, on haze. I know, but what does that mean? So I, I understand it now because it turns out that sentence is actually very significant to it the is. story. Uh, yeah. And also, I'm sure it relates to the framing device of you can only explain something through kind of inadvertently uh, yes. explaining the symptoms of it, but it's kind of too massive to, to en encapsulate in its purest form. The difficulty of actually communicating your inner experience to another person. Yeah, and, and uh, there were a lot of sentences where I felt this. It is fair, though. It's a fair, I think, I think a lot of people feel that way. Yeah, so I, and, I, and, and I understand it was the intention of the author to make it so difficult or so ambiguous or yeah. so, you know, because he's trying to convey that even the narrator who's narrating this can't even properly describe it or convey it with just words. Um, Even but, Marlo can't, uh, maybe, we yeah. can say. Yeah. There was another line that was like, uh, it gave me the notion of an exotic immensity ruled by an august benevolence. Yes. <laughs> oh, of course, that, that feeling. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't we all felt that? <laughs> like, there's so many instances of this where, like, I, I don't understand what they're saying, but I, I get that he also is failing to describe exactly what he was, he was experiencing at the time. So, yeah, that's, that's I think, a barrier of entry to, a, to, a, to um, an amateur reader. Like, you, this is kind of a, a veteran reader uh, type book, you know? Yeah, it, it is a veteran reader if type If you're book. inexperienced, this is not the one to start with. We'll start with The Hunger Games, yeah. then Agatha Christie, then yeah. this third, yeah. I would say. And, and, and that's like a jump still. Like, we should have done a different one before this. The, the biggest jump. The, the biggest, biggest jump, jump of yeah. the three, yeah. This is one of the most challenging books. Um, it is. It's, yeah. it's, I think it's considered to be a pretty challenging read. Yeah, and I think I read somewhere that... It's um, it's studied so much, or it's so enduring with like scholars and academia because it's so ambiguous that it can be interpreted so yeah. you know hugely. I think that is part of it. There's so many ways to read it, and so many ways to take meaning from it. so much of the so much of the book can be is so difficult to parse that yeah. you can go at it endlessly almost and and i i found just the actual events the literal events of the book difficult to follow as he does well. he, he does sometimes describe them in a sense where like i think when kurtz enters he's on a stretcher but he doesn't say 
And then I saw some, <laughs> yeah. some villagers carrying Kurtz on a stretcher. He's yeah. like, he's like, and then the the apparition. What does he say? Like, I, I like a even... figure, like an apparition. He's like his voice is described first. Yeah, you're supposed to infer like, oh, that's Kurtz that he's talking about. Also, well, also there's like these jumps in time, and and there's there's like narratives within narratives within narratives where he's talking to someone who's yeah. describing his uh, experiences with something meanwhile, and a memory whole... of someone saying something else about their own experience. Meanwhile, within... the whole story is a narrator describing how Marlowe told him. Yes, like Marlowe's not even the narrator. No. So yeah. Like in Lord Jim, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Or maybe Lord Jim's the same. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So whatever, um, you know, it it was it was hard to follow because I also you know, when there was some point where the manager was talking to someone yeah. and um, Marlo was on his steamship roof listening or something to listening yeah. to them and I was like I don't even know what they're saying I can't follow the implications were, of this is that when they're talking about um, how they were like oh Kurtz is ill maybe yeah. ill in the head as well yes know? yeah. Yes, but but I I didn't when I was reading the uh, plot summary later on, it, it was saying that oh the manager is actually resentful of him and he, he's he vying he for his manager. job. Yeah, yeah. I that what went he right say? over my head. Doesn't the manager go? He wants to be manager. <laughs> doesn't he say that? <laughs> maybe he does, but I that I missed it. <laughs> or, no, did, or maybe he says oh, and we all know what he wants after that. Yeah, and yeah. and how am I supposed to know what the manager thinks? We think. Kurtz wants well what would he be most con no I, you're right though yeah. you're very right I, I think this is a valid point uh I think even when I first read it it took me a while like it's yeah. a short book it's usually not much more than 100 pages yes and so like yours has big print and it's like 100 pages yeah like this is why I think you know if you're if you're new to this book there's no shame in going on to, you know, spark notes or no, not at you all. Know, something like that. That's going to buy the Coles notes. Physical yes. book. Like it's that you need an aid to read this book and fully grasp it and understand it. And you can't possibly be expected to get all that from like a first reading of it, which when the book operates on so many different levels. No, I think I remember when I first read it, when I was like, uh, like a while ago, like six or seven years ago, I it, it's I was gonna say it's short, but it took me. I didn't just read it in a day. Like it took me like at least a week, maybe a bit more, because um, you have to take your time. You really have to. You really have to take your time with this book. And I would say, yeah, I agree. No shame in looking at Spark Notes. I think there's a YouTube video made by Spark Notes that does a pretty good job. I'm pretty sure I watched that when I was a teenager, and that that helped. So, because it is obtuse, and a lot of the actual like key events of the story are a bit hard to grasp just yes. reading it. Yes. On on a first read. But so, if you but if you kind of know, and you then stick you with and then it. you read it, then it suddenly all makes sense, and you can focus on the other things like this that are time, more important. Like I would say, this time reading it for the second time, knowing the plot event, like knowing the story. And just being able to, like, you know, knowing what's going to happen, being able to focus on the style, the 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 foreshadowing of various events, the the way that the themes are explored, it was it was much more rewarding on a second read. Mm -hmm. I knew I liked it on a first read. I I because I hadn't really read anything like quite like it, and for me that's almost enough. Like if something's novel, in that way, haha, novel. <laughs> something's kind of novel in that way um in terms of i had never really read a book that was written like this before that was almost enough for me plus 
the sort of the sort of uh, fabulistic character to the story. It's very simple, but a very sort of primally affecting story of like this guy going deeper and deeper into the wilderness, trying to find this shadowy figure of Kurtz. There's some inherent um, drama there, or not drama, but almost something something that inherently is it's a good hook, you might say. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you or, could elevator pitch this. Yeah, well, you could you can sense that it's more meaningful than just the events it's conveying. Yeah, and when I was sixteen or seventeen, I don't think I fully understood. I don't know if I, I don't think I fully understand the themes now. I definitely didn't when I was sixteen. But uh, what was the point I was driving at? Yes, but I liked <laughs> I liked it anyway. Yes, but on a second read, and I was able to think of much more about the sort of more like purposeful intention, like nature of the book actually really like interrogate the themes i think i understand them better now let's mm -hmm. say and that was very i found it very rewarding on a second read mm -hmm. but so on a on a separate note um i <laughs> i was pretty taken aback by the uh the n-word yeah. that's uh flagrantly uh yeah. <laughs> thrown about i was i was not uh, i didn't it. realize that this book was written so long ago um, and, uh, yeah, it was, yeah. it was pretty surprising. It so just talk, drops out of nowhere. I think we'll talk a bit at the end about sort of, uh, that aspect of reading a book. Yeah. From over more than a hundred years ago. How does it, how do we read a book like this today in this day and age when obviously, yeah, things, attitudes have changed for the better in so many ways. Uh, where does that leave Heart of Darkness? Well, it, we'll talk think, about that, I, but I do want to talk about that yeah. at the end rather than okay. now. Okay, but if that's okay with you. I, yeah, that's that's fine with me. I think you know, forget that specific example. But I just the thing that it's made it jarring, the, yeah. well, the thing that made it unique for me is that I'm used to reading books from this time period that are set actually in you know the UK. Yeah, you're right. So most uh, you're right. Most classics, especially ones written from sort of the 19th century, would be set in either Europe or America. So yeah, it is kind of novel. Yeah, there you go, novel again. It's kind of <laughs> unique, let's say, yes. to have a classic set in Central Africa. Yeah, but I, I was I was saying before that that's just because the literary canon is Eurocentric. It's not actually to say that come, there's there you go. There's you know, someone who's been to university <laughs> university English classes right there. I just I just you know don't come after me. Uh, you know <laughs> African novelists uh, of like great. Chinua, uh, Chinua, don't come after Tristan. Uh, you know ability. I'm I just I'm we're not as familiar with it because we don't study it as much in school because blah blah blah. Okay. Because yeah. Eurocentrism. Okay, wow. let's keep going. There you go. You, you've adopted the don't come after me line. <laughs> that should be the name of our podcast. Don't come after don't me. Don't come after me with Trish and Ish. Okay, yeah. Okay. okay. We'll, we'll, we'll work on it. All right. Yes. So, yes. Yeah. Time to get into, I guess, the meat of the matter, right? You um, want to just sort of go into the main sort of themes of the book? Or um, is there any other first impressions you had? Yeah, I think, uh, you know... Yes, I, I'm, I'm still trying to get my bearings after our interruption. So let's continue, uh, I think. Let's continue, I think. <laughs> I don't so, think I have anything more to say, but it's possible that might be a misrepresentation of facts. Okay, so yeah, so you're done with sort of first impressions. I think so, yeah. So getting into sort of the, the meat of the matter, as I said already once, <laughs> the major themes that I think really set this book apart and which are why I'm a fan of it, I think that, and I'm sure you look, you, I think you'll agree, we talked about this a little bit beforehand, there's sort of two main 
theme, sort of two major ways of reading this book. Not to say that there are only these two ways, or if you have an entirely different reading, that's wrong. There's as many ways to read a book as there are readers, I would say. But I think I think most people would agree that there's sort of two main uh, reads of Heart of Darkness. On the one end, they're not contradictory. They're very much mutually reinforcing uh, of one another. So on the one hand, Heart of Darkness is very much a critique of European colonialism in Africa, of the system, the whole system and the enterprise and the sort of false justifications that people used at the time to, to support the idea of, of starting colonies in Africa. And on the other hand, it's a sort of much like deeper story about a much more universal story about the sort of the well, the darkness that is deep inside every human soul, every psyche, uh, sort of the evils that all people are liable to engage in. Using this example of colonialism in the Congo as sort of an example that shines light on this. And so this is how the two themes sort of weave together and reinforce each other. Uh, I guess quickly we could talk about the sort of anti-colonial or maybe you know, as the universe, English university department post-colonial, is that what they're saying in more academic terms? You know, I'm a creative <laughs> writing major, so actually I'm not qualified to discuss this. I'm an English minor. Oh, English. Well, you've, you've taken English classes in university. That's more than me. <laughs> we didn't study this, that's for sure. <laughs> that's what they say, though, right? Post-colonial? Is that too yeah, fancy? Yeah, I, no, I think... Wait, is it a post-colonial reading you're, you're saying? Or this is a post-colonial book? I guess if it's a book that critiques colonialism that's maybe don't come after me english majors okay no no I, but i think like you have a post-colonial take on this book i don't know if this is a post-colonial book well not literally in that it was written at the time <laughs> when colonies still existed yeah but i think the themes of it are since it's a critique of that i guess you could say it's a post-colonial book okay maybe, maybe. i don't know i don't know maybe i'm using that term wrong I was trying to be trying to be fancy. I overstepped my bounds. I, I you know what? I'm I've already overstepped, so I'm not the authority. Don't this come is, after this whole me, show English is, majors. Is overstepping really? <laughs> I know, I know. We deign to have an opinion. Yeah, you're not allowed to have an opinion on books, <laughs> but yeah. So I think that you know, throughout the book, we get the sense that you know that Marlowe is extremely critical of the whole idea of going to somewhere like Africa, setting up a colony, especially if it's being sort of justified but with the idea that, you know, uh, by having a colony in Africa, you're actually going to, like, improve the, the people's lives there, bring civilization, all of that. Clearly, Marlowe, the way he talks about this stuff, is, like, very scathing of it, and he does not, like, truck with this idea at all. Like, the way he describes various incidents of it, like, first of all, he's just, like, he often has, like, a sort of bitter, sarcastic tone that's, like, full of contempt. I, I'm i sure, you, like, you notice that as well. Yep. Like, the way, he, like, he talks about the actions of the various European characters in Africa, and he's just full he's just full of contempt for everyone he meets. He's always, like, calling them greedy, insulting them, saying they're fat. <laughs> he, says, he says the one guy had a fat flipper-like hand, for instance, but he's, you know, the manager, he always, like, saying he's, he's uneasy around him. He's, like, this cynical greedy guy well he's also describing how he keeps losing his temper with all these people yeah like he's irritable around them all the it's, time it's true 
yeah, he's like he 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 does he does not have a high opinion of the people who are like leading the sort of colonial project. Like, uh, there's also the sort of the the uh, the description of the time when he like he talks about the guy he's replacing, Fress Levin, and how he died <laughs> because he was like he he was Fress Levin was this Danish guy. Who was captaining a ship and he was supposedly like the kindest and gentlest guy who ever lived but after being in the congo and being in this position of power due to like the colonial authorities there because he was a colonial authority he started to become the kind of person who over two chickens started beating up a village chief and then the village chief's son killed him and then he talks about like he says something like i no one knew what happened to the hens i bet the cause of progress got them like that's he's he's made such a, it's a he's, sarcastic he's got this jab. Dry wit. It's like a sarc yeah, it's a yeah. sarcastic jab at the whole idea that by imposing colonial rule on the Congo, it's like the cause of progress. He makes a joke to his friends on the Nelly on the Yall. <laughs> he says, "I was visiting you guys so much, it was as if I had a uh, an urge to civilize you or something." That's another like there's full of these like sarcastic jabs, and he says to his aunt, "I uh I ventured to guess that the company was run for profit." His oh. aunt says, oh, you know, the company and our colonial authorities are going to go to Africa. They're going to civilize all the people there. And then he says, I ventured to guess that the company was just run for profit. I, I was just on that. I was just going to read a quote. You want to read the actual quote? Well, um, sure. It's just that she, uh, quote, uh, page 18. She Is this talked, the aunt? Yeah, the aunt, the quote, excellent aunt, which that's another sarcastic jab. Yeah, because he doesn't actually like her. Yeah, uh, <laughs> she talked about weaning those ignorant millions from their horrid ways till upon my word she made me quite uncomfortable i ventured to hint that the company was run for profit so even there at the beginning he's, even before his journey it's like he doesn't buy into the whole idea of the civilizing mission mm -hmm. you know and then just the way that the colonial rule is described i mean like there's the famous passage where you know Marlowe meets the he sees how brutally the people of the congo are treated the famous scene where he comes across a, a bunch of railway workers who've been overworked so much that they're basically dying from exhaustion. And he, he tries to hand one of the men some bread and he takes the bread and he dies before he can even eat it. It's, it's gut-wrenching stuff. It's clearly someone who was appalled by what he saw. Like Conrad was clear. You can get the sense that this is a guy who saw stuff like this and was appalled by it, by the brutality of it. And then, and you know, and wrote about experiences similar to that as like a pretty scathing critique of the whole idea, which was very much, I think, the the dominant one at the time that European rule in Africa was the right thing to do. It was in the cause of progress. It was lifting up the lives of the people in Africa. It was bringing civilization, all this. That was, I think, very much at the time, 1899, that was the dominant attitude in, in Europe. And Conrad was right, like, this book is whatever you say about it, that is not the perspective it endorses at all. Mm -hmm. Like even like the way he describes colonial rule as sort of the absurd qualities, like the, the time when there's a fire in one of the stations and one of the company agents is running with a pail of water to put, put it out and there's a hole in the pail mm -hmm, of water. Mm -hmm. I thought that was very emblematic of like, not only is it, are these guys incompetent, but it's like absurd. Mm -hmm. And the description of the French warship there's a quality of absurdity to that as well. So you'll remember that this is something based on a direct experience of Conrad's, but in the story, Marlowe 
on his way to the Congo, he witnesses a scene where there's a French warship firing shells into a jungle along the African coast because there's supposedly rebels there. I'd like to read that just because I think it encapsulates part of the attitude that uh, the sort of the folly and absurdity of the colonial project. He says, <clears throat> Once, I remember, we came upon a man of war anchored off the coast. There wasn't even a shed there, and she was shelling the bush. It appears the French had one of their glorious wars going on thereabouts. Her ensign drooped limp like a rag. The muzzles of the long six-inch guns stuck out over the, all over the low hull. The greasy, slimy swell swung her up lazily and let her down, swaying her thin masts. In the empty immensity of the earth, sky, and water, there she was, incomprehensible, firing into a continent. Pop would go one of the six-inch guns. A small flame would dart and vanish. A little white smoke would disappear. A tiny projectile would give a feeble screech, and nothing happened. Nothing could happen. There was a touch of insanity in the proceeding, a sense of lugubrious drollery in the sight, and it was not dissipated by somebody on board assuring me earnestly that there was a camp of natives. He called them enemies hidden out, out of sight somewhere. It's like you can see, like, you know, even in the language, like the mask, like the, the, the ensign goes limp, the cannonball is tiny, there's, you know, a sense of, of insanity about it. And he uses similar language when he describes the way that the pilgrims, like the white guys who go with Marlowe on the boat up the river, when they start firing at uh, the group of Congolese people that attack them at one point later. And they start firing their weapons at him. I think he calls them imbeciles, doesn't he? <laughs> like, I don't remember. So you get this attitude of, the attitude towards colonialism is not only that it's like absurd and sort of there's an insane quality to it. They like Conrad's scathing about this whole idea. There's one last quote I'd like to read about this part of it because I think it sums up this the attitude to how the colonial project is sort of presented in this book. This is when um, this is just after Marlowe arrives in the Congo, I believe, and he says, "But as I stood on this hillside." I foresaw that in the blinding sunshine of that land, I would become acquainted with a flabby, pretending, weak-eyed devil of a rapacious and pitiless folly. How insidious he could be, too, I was only to find out several months later and a thousand miles farther. So this, I think this line is actually a good place to sort of segue, because I think it covers both the surface level, but important, but surface level colonial critique, because the devil is... The rapacious greed so flabby it's like gluttonous it represents the greed and gluttony of the europeans in the congo pretending because they have this pretense of going there to help people civilize the continent progress and all this when really they're in it for themselves weak-eyed because you could say that people like the other white characters are purposely blind to what's going on. They they believe their own lies. Maybe with the exception of Marlowe and Kurtz, mm -hmm. but everyone else. Yeah, and but I also think that this line about the this particular devil also can work on the, another level too in that it's not just the evils of European colonialism, but it's maybe something a bit deeper. Um the the one thing I would add to what you yeah. said previously um, I was just thinking of it like on the spot. I don't have the quote or anything, but um, 
I think that he also sarcastically mentions uh, that the, you know, people who are essentially like enslaved or like yeah, the dying, uh, dying people, yeah. and completely unable to, um, you know, fight back in any way or like oppose um, these people um, were referred to as like criminals. Yeah, but they he were called criminals. Referred to them as criminals in like quotation. Yeah, because that's that's like, what no doubt he was told they're criminals. That's yeah. why that's why we're forcing them to work yeah. on these railways and these terrible conditions. But you can tell from the way that he writes it that he doesn't respect. Like he's he's rolling his eyes as yeah. he refers to them like that. You get that sense a lot. Yeah. Like if he's recounting what other people, other Europeans are t- are saying with like an incredible amount of contempt. Like and like he's rolling his eyes. He's he doesn't buy it. He's mm-hmm. like he said he thinks this is all bullshit. <laughs> like I, like I think that I think that's true of Marlowe's character, and you know we can infer this is true. This is Conrad's opinion as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I think anything else about the sort of the book as you know anti-colonial uh, critique. Um, I I was there were there were all these like little things in the in the cliff's notes thing i was reading about how shout out to you. <laughs> uh, certain certain images or certain um scenes you know represented or like were, okay. were symbolic of of his criticism for it yeah and uh yeah sure I, okay I, well if you remember I, I don't really remember them <laughs> but i think i think uh Maybe there like were, the Congo River as a snake. Yes, that was definitely one of them. The Congo River as a snake. The and idea of traveling sort of, up this river is like it's, it's like a snake sort of uh, enchanting, uh, Euro- the European, the white guys like to come up to come here and make money. Like I don't know, is that yeah, or like there's some sort of like biblical imagery, like, you know, like the snake. Is, oh, when he calls know. when he calls Brussels a whited sepulcher. Oh well, that's Maybe. not what. Isn't that that one was about like hypocrisy? Yeah, because that's a quote from from Matthew from the Bible. That so it's like yeah, a whited sepulcher, so like ivory or white and beautiful, whatever, pure outside, but has bones inside. So it's like yeah, it's about hypocrisy. He calls, I think. Well, he goes to a city on the continent. I think we're supposed to infer it's probably Brussels in Belgium, and uh, he calls that city a whited sepulcher, right? The sepulchral city. Yeah, that's a tough word to say. Sepulchral. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think you're right because it but was th- that's an... that's one of those details that I I wouldn't know just from you know I, my knowledge of the Bible is pretty much non-existent. I'm sure. I'm sure. You know, I think I that was that was like in my head already because I think when I was like 16, <laughs> I also looked up whited sepulcher <laughs> online to be like, what does this mean? And uh, yeah, it was from the from the Gospels, and it yeah it was meant to symbolize hypocrisy. So it's like you have this pure looking beautiful exterior but inside is dead sort of rotten gruesome imagery right and and also i think that it it was also mentioning something about all those different you know characters that he encountered yeah um throughout his journey were you know versions of what he could become as a result of being there too long oh yeah no i think well i think that leads up pretty well to the sort of the the other reading yeah because i think that's definitely the case yeah like Fre- Frezzle Levin, Levin for one, yeah, was considered you know a gentle and kind person, but then and then he's like his going around beating people up over chickens, over the smallest things, yeah, over two black hens, yeah, and then yeah. The, wasn't the, I think that also like the manager is kind of the most um, representative of the company, 
right? Yeah. Like his his intentions are ostensibly of the like noble. profit of the profit driven motive of colonialism specifically. And then yeah. he's only worried about you know his job security. Yeah, he's very petty. He he's like conspiring. He 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 doesn't want. He he delays the the shipment of rivets to stop Marlowe repairing the boat, so Kurtz is left out to dry. Yeah. Has more time to get sick and die, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, and that brings us. I mean, I think the ultimate example of sort of a mirror as to who Marlowe could become, or really who any of us could become in the right circumstances, is Mister Kurtz himself. Okay, so which who who's we haven't talked about much, but he's probably the most important character in the book. Okay, I have a quote for Kurtz that's pretty long. It ties... yeah, oh, mine were long too. No, so, I know. Yeah. I'm saying I should say it now, and yeah. then we can unpack it and discuss his character after. Yeah, maybe. do it. Okay, so I'm gonna tie this into my name that Chad uh, pick. Oh my god. Okay, so my name that Chad for this. Um, but... we agree. Okay. 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 Wait. <laughs> no, no, no. But I'm tying it in. This okay. is this is a, a time saving measure. Okay. There is no Chad. Yeah, there we, is no Chad we agreed. In this novel. We agreed before starting this episode that there was no Chad in this <laughs> but, book. But here's my even more unique take. If Marlowe were to choose, though, his Chad would a hundred percent be Kurtz. Mm, I think I know what passage you're going to talk about. Okay. But yeah. Okay. okay. So. Even though Marlowe is like the biggest critic of all of this, uh, we we feel his contempt and we we understand his opinion of Kurtz to be you know the worst Let's opinion say ever. Less than stellar. <laughs> <laughs> less than stellar. Yeah. Um, he does have a certain admiration for him, and he does have a certain respect for Kurtz going to places that he himself would not be able to go, but that yes. he is aware is everybody is capable. This is an important passage, yeah. To. I'm pretty sure I know what you're gonna yeah, which one you're gonna read. Alright. So this is on page one oh one for me. I like I always cite the pages, whereas I'm just like <laughs> So then at this point he says <laughs> Well the thing is, if you don't have my version, it's not even gonna be on that page That's anyway. True. And yeah. I'm not even saying what version it is. So yeah. it's really not necessary. It's up to you guys to guess. Listeners, <laughs> write in what edition Tristan has. Okay, so yeah, this bear with me, but I think this is gonna be worth it. Okay. However, as you see, I did not go to join Kurtz there and then. I did not. I remained to dream the nightmare out to the end and to show my loyalty to Kurtz once more. Destiny. My destiny. Droll thing life is, that mysterious arrangement of merciless logic for a futile purpose. The most you can hope from it is some knowledge of yourself that comes too late, a crop of unextinguishable regrets. I have wrestled with death. It is the most unexciting contest you can imagine. It takes place in an impalpable grayness with nothing underfoot, with nothing around, without spectators, without clamor, without glory, without the great desire of victory, without the great fear of defeat, in a sickly atmosphere of tepid skepticism, without much belief in your own right, and still less in that of your adversary. If such is the form of ultimate wisdom, then life is a greater riddle than some of us think it to be. I was within a hair's breadth of the last opportunity for pronouncement, and I found with humiliation that probably I would have nothing to say. This is the reason why I affirm that Kurtz was a remarkable man. He had something to say. He said it. Since I had peeped over the edge myself, I understand better the meaning of his stare, 
that could not see the flame of the candle, but was wide enough to embrace the whole universe, piercing enough to penetrate all the hearts that beat in the darkness. He had summed up, he had judged. The horror, he was a remarkable man. After all, this was the expression of some sort of belief. It had candor, it had conviction, it had a vibrating note of revolt in its whisper. It had the appalling face of a glimpsed truth, the strange commingling of desire and hate. And it is not my own extremity I remember best, a vision of grayness without form filled with physical pain and a careless contempt for the evanescence of things, even of this pain itself. No, it is his extremity that I have seemed to have lived through. True, he had made that last stride. He had stepped over the edge while I had been permitted to draw back my hesitating foot. That's it. Yep, that's yes. that's the one. No, that's it. That's good. <laughs> I I I'm glad you uh, read that quote because it is it's important. This is how, this is shortly after Kurt's spoiler alert dies, <laughs> and Marlo describes how he almost dies himself, and then and then he recovers, and then this is how he phrases it. Although I think it's not. It's there's a double meaning to what he means when he says that Kurtz had gone all the way, whereas Marlowe had only peered in and was allowed to withdraw at the last second. But I think you're right. The fact that that Kurtz, uh, in his dying moments, is with his famous last words, "The horror, the horror," seems to have recognized. Well, he's recognized something, hasn't he? Yeah, I guess we don't quite know what it is, though, because that's the ambiguity of those last words. But I think it, I, I agree that it's to a certain extent ambiguous, but I think that what he recognized is the sort of, well, it's, it's this, the main theme of the book, which is to say that, you know, at, in the heart of every human being is this innate and uh, often hidden, but very powerful element of darkness that means that people will always be liable to do evil things, savage things, we might say, uh, in the language of the book, and that it's something that can't ever be fully got rid of because it is sort of an inherent and deep-seated part of every person. And it just needs the right circumstances, and no matter who you are, it can make itself manifest and you'll be doing terrible things. And that's the story. That's Kurtz's story. But it's everyone's story, too, also. It's, it's the story of you and me, if only our circumstances were different. Yeah. I think that's the main crux of the book. And I think that passage, Marlowe realizes this. He saw, he saw this. He was allowed to step back. He doesn't go, well, let's just, he doesn't put anyone's, he doesn't put anyone's <laughs> head on a pike, let's say, <laughs> but, but he knows that he's capable of it yes, or that everyone, that everyone yeah, is capable including of it. himself. Yeah, that's right. I think that's, I think that's the essence of what Kurtz's last words mean. And I guess you're right. If Marlowe was, and, and it's like, he hates Kurtz, but he also gives him a, grudging respect for acknowledging that well that's that's part of the thing that perplexed me was why is he going to these lengths to like protect kurtz's reputation 
That's as well. That's interesting. You know, like not just to his intended, but to everyone who goes to visit him. Yeah. And asks for, you know, documents and other things pertaining to Kurtz. So that's the only... Is that why you think? Well, the... I, guess the, I guess that's not that relevant. Like, it doesn't matter. Oh, I think much. it... I mean, we could come back to it if you want. There's a few... Yeah, I mean, like, I, I think... Do you think that you took a similar read of, of like, Kurtz's whole arc? Where, yeah. Where he, you know, where he, um, you know, quite famously, Kurtz, Mr. Kurtz, he's, everyone's talking about him. He's this remarkable person. He's, you know, he's a journalist. He's a painter. He's a musician. He's, like, uh, the most eloquent person you've ever met. He sends in more ivory than all the other agents combined. Everyone's saying like he's going to be running the company soon. He's this remarkable guy, so so Marlo's intrigued by him. They get to the central station. They're like Kurtz has probably fallen ill, so Marlo's task is to retrieve him. And then when they find him, of course, he's famously essentially become uh, like he set himself up to be worshipped, basically as like a god or a demigod or some sort of uh, being like that by the local people. Because probably by overawing them with the use of weapons, like modern weapons, like, like you know, repeating rifles and so on. And he's become like, you know, he joins in the various uh, rituals that they do. He leads them on raids against other tribes. He, you know, he cuts people's heads off and puts them in on stakes. He has a ring of heads on pikes around his station. You know, he's carried around in a litter. He has a and, uh, a Congolese native mistress, you know, you know, who is bedecked with all these jewels and so on. He's basically become this sort of brutal warlord, pretty much, uh, in Central Africa, you know. And uh, it's this that forms the crux of the story. And this is what Marlowe's talking about when he said he's he's kind of gone all the way. This is the darkness mm-hmm. that has taken him, taken a hold in him. And and his intentions were supposedly good at the beginning he wrote some eloquent and like beautiful yeah. you know in statement of intent or something to like the that. So- international society for the suppression of savage customs about how yeah about how he was going to um you know civilize the congo and make everyone's lives better and he and it's it's interesting that even then he says like us europeans with our advanced technology must appear to the people of the congo like gods Right, and then Some we see, yeah, yeah. And then we see that it takes a much darker turn. Not a, he's not a benevolent god; he's very much a evil one. <laughs> <laughs> Hot take. Hot take. <laughs> Hitting people's heads on stakes <laughs> is bad, <laughs> and I won't apologize for saying it. <laughs> I think decapitating people is bad. Um, yeah, so I I think that. This is the this is what most people remember from the book. It's the this sort of very evocative sort of story of Kurtz's descent into darkness, really. And I, I just I also think I want I, I wanted to read a few passages that show this because the book does obviously describes it much better than <laughs> than, than I can. I think that these passages are some of the most important. I mean, including the one you read, but the description of Kurtz, you know. Why, so why did this guy, Kurtz, who was, you know, in a lot of ways, the most, the shining example of quote unquote, like civilization, you know, Mm -hmm. he's like this Renaissance man, he can paint, he can write, he can play music, all this. Why did he 
fall like this into into darkness and i think the book posits that it's it's almost like an effect of an effect of like you know uh, the uh, the land itself almost yeah there's well, a famous the, well, well the the guy who died over two hens also same thing someone speculated oh the jungle and the sun got to him or something and the doctor marlo visits he says oh wait i'll, I'll quote that bit first so that when marlo before he goes to africa he visits a doctor uh who's like he says i want to measure your head because i'm interested in <laughs> i'm interested in these guys who who go to to africa and what happens to them right because uh, he's like, you know, they, they, they have these sort of changes. And the doctor says, I always ask leave in the interest of science to measure the crania of those going out there, he said. And when they come back too, I asked, oh, I never see them, he remarked. And moreover, the changes take place inside, you know. Right. The doctor foreshadows this on the uh, this sort of uh, idea that, and that like, and the Frizz Levin story too, that the Swede tells him. <laughs> Shout out to the Swede. <laughs> but, Maybe he's the Chad. Me, no. I mean, I no. don't know enough about him, really. <laughs> uh, but there, it's almost like there's this idea that the land itself maybe has this influence over, that it reveals the sort of inner darkness. There's a passage sort of halfway through the book where Marlowe's describing Kurtz. He says, the wilderness had patted him on the head and behold, it was like a ball, an ivory ball. It had caressed him, and lo, he had withered. It had taken him, loved him, embraced him, got into his veins, consumed his flesh, and sealed his soul to its own by the inconceivable ceremonies of some devilish initiation. He was its spoiled and pampered favorite. And if you'll bear with me later on the same page, it describes how Kurtz is talking about how he sort of seems like he he owns everything, like the station, his ivory, the people, you know. Oh, he, I, I know what, yeah. You should have heard him, Marlo says, you should have heard him say, my ivory. Oh, yes, I heard him. My intended, my ivory, my station, my river, my everything belonged to him. It made me hold my breath in expectation of hearing the wilderness burst into a prodigious peal of laughter that would shake the fixed stars in their places. Everything belonged to him, but that was a trifle. Thing was to know what he belonged to, how many powers of darkness claimed him for their own, and then slightly later. He had taken a high seat amongst the devils of the land. I mean, literally. You can't understand? Marlowe is now talking to the people he's relaying the story to. You can't understand? How could you? With solid pavement under your feet, surrounded by kind neighbors ready to cheer you on or to fall on you, stepping delicately between the butcher and the policeman? How can you imagine what particular region of the first ages a man's untrammeled feet may take him into by way of solitude, utter solitude without a policeman, by way of silence, utter silence, where no warning voice of a kind neighbor can be heard, whispering of public opinion? These little things make all the great difference. Of course, you may be too much of a fool to go wrong, too dull even to know you're being assaulted by the powers of darkness. Hmm. I think that passage sort of it brings up the sort of a few different strands. Like for one, it's like that this the evil within Kurtz was there to begin with. It's like a primal aspect of him and all people that being in this environment where he's put in a place with no restraints, no restraints of, you know, 
so-called like polite society, no policemen, no neighbors watching. And he's given by the structures of colonial authority, all this power over the lives of the people, the combination of those two, he's in a place where he has no restraints on what he might want to do. Plus being in a place where, you know, it's, He's in the wilderness, you yeah, know, he's the surrounded rules of by civilizations yeah. don't apply. It's almost as it's like, you know, it's cast as almost like a trip back to the the, the early days of humanity, which, yeah. you know, whatever. Maybe that's <laughs> more on that later. More on this later. <laughs> but but as a literary device, I think it works very well. Maybe it has some implications, but I think as a literary device, all this combines into this extremely like evocative and like thought provoking this depiction of the sort of primal darkness of humanity that you take a civilized man, the most civilized man, European man you can think of, the archetype. And Kurtz is very much like almost an archetype of, you know, quote unquote European civilization. There's even a line like he was he was like his mom was half English, his dad was half French. All Europe contributed to the making yeah. of Kurtz. So he's like he's a representation of you know, European civilization. So you take a civilized European man, quote unquote, put him out in the wilderness where he has no restraints on his actions, give him power by the structures of colonial authority. And what does he become? He becomes a devil. And that's the story of Kurtz, essentially. And I just think the way it's done is is so uh, evocative and so like thought, thought-provoking. I already said both of those things. But th- this is this is the heart part if you will, of why I think that, of why I really love this book. I think that it's this portrayal of the dark side of humanity that is done in a way that, I don't know if any other book does it better, you know. Sorry, Mockingjay. <laughs> um, you know, while you were saying that, it occurred to me that, um, like, that's the the focus on you know, context or like location or being in the, you know, jungle as a metaphor for being away from the constraints of society. Um, it, it kind of better illustrated for me, um, you know, how when Marlowe returns to civilization and he just can't stand people anymore. They were like intruders. Yeah. And, he, and he's like, he has no patience for them. And they he don't thinks know. They're just happy and stupid and they're blissfully like unaware. Yes. Yeah. Like that contempt makes more sense to me now because he's aware of how few degrees of separation exist between those exact people and what happened to Kurtz. Yes. And yet they get to live in this world ignorant of that fact. Of not being aware that they are even capable of yeah. that. And he has no patience for that anymore. Yes. You know, like based on just like just that reaction, it, it kind of helped me um understand how this book could have been reconceived as a war uh, movie. Like, you know, oh, was was there a war movie based on this book? I'm just saying <laughs> I, I understand. I understand no, I, yeah. why it turned into that, no, because yeah. it's totally kind of the same thing of like a soldier getting back after a great right. like, no, war. I, no, that... not being able to reintegrate <laughs> with society. I don't know why I just like shit on that opinion. Like it's actually <laughs> it's actually good. Like... <laughs> because maybe I was implying that I didn't I wasn't even aware of a movie. Oh, but oh, someone did. should make a war movie about this. No, it's true. No, I think you're exactly right. I think that's probably why 
Maybe we should, we should call Francis up and ask him why he, yeah. yeah. Were you thinking when you made Apocalypse Now that a <laughs> Vietnam War was a similar, like a place where where your, the your same restraints themes, are gone? But yeah, like that, that is interesting because it's such a, it is a radical choice to, to base it off of something and then completely change the context of it. Like a war is another place that, uh, that can show someone that lacks restraint in the gratification of their various lusts. That there was something wanting in him, <laughs> some small matter which, when the pressing need arose, could not be found under his magnificent eloquence. Whether he knew of this deficiency himself, I can't say. I think the knowledge came to him at last, only at the very last. But the wilderness had found him out early and taken on him a terrible vengeance for the fantastic invasion. I think it had whispered to him things about himself which he did not know, things of which he had no conception till he took counsel with this great solitude. And the whisper had proved irresistibly fascinating. It echoed loudly within him because he was hollow at the core. Took the words right out of my mouth. Well, I, 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 I just I needed to read that one too because I, I, I was like, it was <laughs> that that passage and the last long passage I read. I was like, these ones I have to read. Like you, I like how you integrated it into your normal sentence. So it was like you came up with that on the spot. <laughs> what about yeah? What did I say about passage? I actually just came up with that on the spot. <laughs> Okay, but that that actually brings me to, uh, he talks about how, you know, at the last, Kurtz sort of comes face to face with this reality. That's in his famous last words, like, he's, that's him acknowledging what we've been saying, like, and then you brought up shortly afterwards that Marlowe gave him a sort of grudging respect, and you right. said that that might be why he preserves Kurtz's reputation. Oh, we're going back to this. Yes. Okay. Because we put a bit of a pin in yeah, this. Yeah, we did. But I'm not sure how I'm not sure how significant that is. That's just I think something it's very that significant. I, I snagged on. I think it's I think it's significant because famously the ending that I that I famously spoiled for you <laughs> in high school in grade eleven or whatever is that um so Marlo goes back to Europe. And the last scene, he ta- he meets Kurtz's cousin. He meets an old journalist colleague of Kurtz's. But the most important scene is that he oh, meets with right. Kurtz's fiance. Yes. Is it my intended, he calls her. I see where you're going with this. And so they have this conversation where obviously his fiance never saw him in Africa. She says he was the, you know, a kind, noble soul, a great man, you know, all this. She's a, a simp for him, essentially. Uh <laughs> There you go. <laughs> okay, yes. Okay, I see where you're going with this. And then, of course, at the end, the very the end of the story is she asks, when she learns that Marlowe witnessed Kurtz dying, his fiance asks what his last words... I think Marlowe says, I, I heard his last words. And she asks, what were his last words? Of course, his last words were, the horror, the horror. But Marlowe lies and says that his last words were his fiance's name. Right. And the question is, why does he do that? Right. Especially given Marlowe <laughs> is a person who earlier on in the book... Are, are, is this going to be about women? Because I have the quote. No. Oh, earlier okay. on in the book said, You know I hate the test and can't bear a lie. Not All because three? I am straighter than the rest of us. <laughs> But simply because it appalls me, there is a taint of death, a flavor of mortality in lies, which is exactly what I hate and detest in the world, what I want to forget. 
Given right. that this is his attitude to lying. What's that? What's that in the context of? Uh, that that line. Yeah, he's talking to his <laughs> friend. I think this is at the point where he ha is just sort of starting his story. Or okay. Yeah. Because I remember that line too, but I don't remember what he was talking about. Especially since the last part thing he does in the story is lie. Right. So, how do we take? Okay. How this do we is, take this? The, okay, I'm just realizing this now, but you know how I was talking about those. The people who are in the, quote, civilized world yeah. and how he can't stand mm -hmm. them anymore. Yes. In a way, I think that this the symbol of those people in like its, you know, most archetypal form is probably women to yeah. this character. Because he does. He, yeah. You had yeah. a quote relating to this. I've got it right now. I'll, yeah. I'll read it right now. So um, he he talks about. Um, He's, he's remarking on women because his aunt said something dumb <laughs> Typical. <laughs> at, at the beginning of the book. And uh, on page 18, he kind of hilariously, but also this is significantly, it says, is. Um, it's queer how out of touch with truth women are. They live, in, <laughs> they live in a world of their own. And there has never been anything like it and never can be. It is too beautiful together. And if they were to set it up, it would go to pieces before the first sunset. Some confounded fact we men have been living contentedly with ever since the day of creation would start up and knock the whole thing over. And then later, um, um, later in yeah. midway through the book, he says, um, they, the women, I mean, are out of it, should be out of it. We must help them to stay in the beautiful world right. of their own, lest ours gets worse. So they are yes. very much a stand in for you know, life back at home, life in the civilized world, the facade. people never really understanding or really coming to know what they're capable people of. People who live uh, lives of just like a, a facade of decency, not realizing like the evils within themselves. They represent the sort of naive innocence I guess. Yeah, and also I guess which it, maybe on a we can literal, get to later. <laughs> yeah, but on like on a literal level, maybe also just yeah, the ignorance to the stuff that's going on over there. Would you say that's accurate? <laughs> <laughs> what is that so obvious? It doesn't even need to be said. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's firsthand experience. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, that that. Uh, so you I, think I didn't that, really make that connection before, but so yeah. you think that Marlowe lies because he basically thinks, "Oh, this you know, this poor naive, foolish woman. I don't want to shatter her illusions." Yeah, but I think it's obviously metaphorical. Of you know, it's more than just her. It's like everyone um, so Marlo, from his world. So Marlowe doesn't want, or do, so Marlowe like doesn't want to. He's like the protector. He's like the protector of the illusion now that Kurtz is dead or something. Why is he the protector of the illusion? I know, if he holds I, I it in wonder, such contempt. I know. That's what I that's what I'm trying to figure out right now. And because... why then does he decide to go all out and we, we pierce must... the illusion to his friends on the Nelly? We must help them to stay in that beautiful world of their own lest ours gets worse. Maybe it's just like he doesn't want to destroy the balance of things, like topple the balance of ignorance and you know he doesn't want to be a shit stir yeah but, but he it, kind of but does because he tells all his the whole know, story is about he him he tells his bros on the cruising y'all yeah. uh this story it's the exact opposite well i wonder if there's some sort of you know they're like his equals he views them as equals he views yeah. them as capable of knowing the truth because they also are explorers or something whereas sure. she's a 
delicate woman who must mm-hmm. be protected, who's who must continue living in the beautiful world of her own. But they don't live in that world, I guess, because they are always at sea and exploring new places and he respects them whereas he thinks he sees women as sort of like naive and and foolish like it's not him telling the world you know it's him in this intimate setting telling one a few people only one of whom really pays attention may not be awake or yeah oh because yeah even the narrator says that some of the he couldn't tell if anyone else was even listening yeah only one person we know actually listened yeah or, so there's also the idea, so 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 they, he sets up the idea of lying as being like a kind of death. And then at the end of the story, he ends it by lying and telling a, a big lie. Okay, yeah. So, so is this... <laughs> you know what, I'm going to go to that last page because he does kind He In fact, his reasoning is something really lame. He just goes, it was too dark. It was too dark. Too dark. It was too dark. <laughs> so... Um, which on the surface it is. I mean, can you imagine? Like, just imagine you're you're engaged. Your husband die. Your your fiance dies <laughs> of a, a, a malaria or whatever in Africa, and then you ask, "Oh, what was his last words?" And he goes, "He said the horror, <laughs> the horror." You know what's funny to me is that he says it was your name, and she goes, "I knew it." I knew it. <laughs> it's like, I, it's what, sad. I it's find sad. it funny. It's, oh, it's, well, I, I it's. It's in sad. a certain context, it's it's sad, but also it's like you were sure, like it couldn't be further. She from was what hoping. He said. She was hoping. Yeah. She was hoping that's what it was. Also, the fact that she, you know, it wasn't. is still in her widow. A attire. year later. Yeah. So she clearly. was. She was what down bad. The kids say. Yeah, but that's cut. That know. that's gonna get cut. <laughs> <laughs> no, Going... it's sad though because it is, when, when yeah. she because the naivety is. Is tragic. There's a tragic quality that she can't know who her fiance was, really. Uh, but what I was gonna, I was gonna say though. So they set up lying as being like, is is, is it a part of Marlowe that's died in telling her this lie? Definitely. And and what is that you think? Is it is it the part of him that was willing to uh, yeah to be the protector of the the lie and and after that he can't stomach. The, the hypocrisy anymore and that's why he tells his friends on the boat oh oh i thought you were saying why does he tell her a lie because a part of him has died and he's In lost so he's telling. lost the will to tell the truth but or that that's also possible he's lost his one principle that he declared the one sort of moral principle he says but but, is then, that he, he... but then he gains it after by telling these guys I yeah. don't know. This, yeah, I don't know. The, the... But I think your your reading is also an interesting one. Yeah. Well, it it is. It's it's telling though that it doesn't end there. Well, it then... ends back in the present. Yes. With the narrator reflecting on what he's just heard and, and and kind of projecting it onto his surroundings. And the narrator, who on the very in the beginning of the book that you loved so much. <laughs> was talking about how how he looked out across the Thames and was imagining the great sort of heroes of of the naval of Britain's sort of navy like the Golden Hind, Francis Drake, uh, the Erebus and Terror. Shout out uh, Canada. Bro- brooding motionless over the biggest and greatest town on earth. It says on page one. You know that's the, yeah no, but I mean when he talks about like uh, the great knights errant of the sea it had borne all the ships whose names are like jewels flashing in the night of time oh. from the golden hind returning with her round flanks full of treasure 
to be visited by the Queen's Highness and then thus pass out of the gigantic tale to the Erebus and Terror, bound on other conquests and then never returned. Brief aside, Erebus and Terror were two ships that left from, from, from London and they wanted to explore the Arctic. Oh. And they, they, they were trapped in ice and everyone on board died. But where did that happen? Canada. So oh. that's fun. Oh, that little, is interesting. Canada tie-in. And they found, they found the Erebus and Terror uh, a few years ago, they found the ships. They were lost. They sent they sent expeditions to try and recover the lost ships. And like in 2015 or 2016, um, uh, our government found them in in the Northwest Territories. Oh, really? Just recently. Both of them? Yeah, both of them. They're and in they, the same place. They're close. I don't know exactly <laughs> where they are. King William Island, I think, in the Northwest Territories. Anyway. That is very much not Oh, that's, that's getting cut. That is definitely getting cut. No, you know what? There yeah. has to be a Canada reference in every single Fine, episode. yeah, that's our, that's our Canadian content quota. Yeah, CBC guy, listen. Yeah. <laughs> I get the Christie visited Canada. Okay, yeah, but you know what? That Okay, but, no, but I had a point. Yeah. I had a point, which was he talks about the great knight's errand of the sea, all the sort of glorious, and then glorious stuff when he looks this, out like, across the Thames this, and at the this end grandiose of grandiose imagery is what you're saying this like romantic it establishes at imagery. the beginning and then it's book and then book at the end it. he looks out over the Thames again and he sees an overcast sky that seemed to lead into the heart of an immense darkness right so that's him realizing that's the narrator it can't happen here oh yes it it can yeah no and 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 again to that point early on on like page 2 or 3 uh, so Mar- so the, the narrator, yeah, his, his ideas about his own civilization of being completely disillusioned by Marlowe's tale. Marlowe, we know he already has this perspective because one of the first things Marlowe said, actually the first thing he says, wasn't it, um, was he's talking about Britain, and he says, and this also, said Marlowe suddenly, has been one of the dark places of the earth. Right, and then so he it's, talks it's about, not even, oh, it can't happen here. It's, oh, it has, it will, and it is. Yeah, not only yeah. was, and he talks about during the Roman period, the Romans must have thought of England in much the same way that Europeans in his day think of the Congo, a place, you know, full of savages, barbaric, you know, uncivilized. Uh, and yeah, and and that's to say that, yeah, not only could it is it can't happen here wrong, Britain was a savage place, and it still is. Everyone is still a savage at heart. You know, that's, uh, I think, I think that's, we were talking a bit about how, like, it does this thing where it draws a lot of parallels between, you know, quote-unquote civilized. We we don't do the quotes anymore. You know that the perspective (laughs) of the book. I, I won't do it anymore. I'll just say civilized because you know that, it's the book is saying that with a wink because we've just described how the whole point of the book is that civilization is a farce, but um, how uh, you know civilized European characters are all are often paralleled and and linked with like quote unquote <laughs> savage like savage uh, African characters. We'll get more into the that whether that's problematic or not later but as a literary device they're constantly being paralleled as being like one another to to get to the point that you know what you know a european might think of as very dark and and brutal and savage about africans you know it's they're lying to themselves if they think that it doesn't apply to them in just as much of a measure as it does to anyone else 
Uh, so the part where he says Britain was once one of the dark places of the world too, that's that's an example of it. There's also, I'd like to read another lengthy passage. This is probably the last lengthy one I'd like to read. Sure. Where it brings this sort of, this idea to sort of full fr fruition. <laughs> where it sort of purposefully, um, uh, not contrasts, but draws parallels between uh, European and, and African people and that any notion that there's a difference and that one is more civilized than the other is is this is, about the cannibals is a farce it's it's not the one about the the cannibals okay. okay so it's this passage here where they're um they're i think they're witnessing some a, a village of congolese people engage in some sort of vaguely defined ritual and marlowe says it was unearthly and the men were well, no, they were not inhuman. Well, you know, that was the worst of it, the suspicion of their not being inhuman. It would come slowly to one. They howled and leaped and spun and made horrid faces. But what thrilled you was just the thought of their humanity, like yours, the thought of your remote kinship with this wild and passionate uproar. Ugly. Yes, it was ugly enough. But if you were man enough, you would admit to yourself that there was in you just the faintest trace of a response to the terrible frankness of the noise, a dim suspicion that there being a meaning, uh, of there being a meaning in it which you, you so remote from the night of first ages, could comprehend. Mm. This idea that you think you think you're this advanced, <laughs> civilized person, so far removed from primitive savage again imagine the quotes primitive <laughs> savage people in the congo but you instantly Some you feel part it of you recognizes it that this is this is part of yourself as mm -hmm. well mm -hmm. that you're not so far away from joining in and as kurtz does later on so i think that that is an, an interesting device as well to sort of the the paralleling to really drive home the point, I think this was the point, one of the major points that I think at the time it was written was pretty um, radical is an overused word, but pretty unique perspective. Very much not the dominant conception at the time that, you know, the talk of the superiority of European civilization was all flim flam. You know that uh, <laughs> that they, there was really nothing to it. It was empty, hollow words, and that Europeans were really just as debased and savage as any, you know, African. So, even though, like today, we'll get into this a little bit later. You know, today I think the sort of language, right, mm -hmm. calling African people savage and so on, you know is uh, it hits a modern person as very sort of problematic and and retrograde and a symptom of the sort of racism of the time and and we'll get into this shortly uh but i think for his time uh i think for his time the message of you know saying that europeans are just as low was quite an quite a unique and uh important take because it it, res it brings them to a level of equality, even if it's not by raising anyone up, it's by bringing people down. It does put the European and the African on an equal playing field. They're both equally horrid, equally <laughs> dark, equally prone to brutality and evil, which, you know, it goes against the dominant perceptions of his time. We would do, I think today, we would prefer a story that lifts up 
people who have been mistreated and says that uh, people from, you know, colonized like countries are just as civilized, just as sophisticated. I'm not saying that this is a bad thing. It probably is the better and more humane way to go about it. Um, people from, you know, Africa are just as sophisticated and civilized as us. And I think that's true. It's almost like a different way of, it's like a glass half empty, glass half full, <laughs> because you could say it that way, or you could say, and I think there's truth in this as well, that people from Europe, uh, white people are just as savage, just as brutal as, you know, people from countries, they freely call those things. This is probably a good place to segue into yeah criticism yeah the racial criticism yeah yeah for sure yeah Yeah. because because like i was saying like this is a book from 1899 and the sort of language used and a lot of the sort of depictions of african people which is a big part of it given the book takes place in the congo um has in you know for the last 50 or so years drawn you know drawn criticism from some uh some people and uh it's it's a big part of the conversation around the book today. So I think we, you know, to do it justice, we need to talk about where does Heart of Darkness stand today in the year of our Lord 2023? <laughs> um, also, if you want to treat yourself, go read the Chinua Achebe essay on the topic because we're going to be discussing it. Yeah, what's it called? I forget. <laughs> uh, you got good. it in your copy. So. Well, you know, it, it, yeah. If you just search up Chinua Achebe, Heart of Darkness it's, essay. It's very readable, actually. It. Like, it's not too academic. Like, you could you could read it very, very quickly. It's no, yeah. short. And I think that, you know, An Image of Africa, Racism in Conrad's Heart of Darkness by Chinua Achebe. And because and, and, this, this essay um, in, like, the 70s, the Nigerian author Chinua Achebe, who you, you may know from Things Fall Apart, was sort of a modern classic. Um, he wrote an essay basically where he critiques the book for essentially using racist stereotypes and language and, and so on to when it comes to the African characters and not fully developing them in the way that the white characters are. And I, I agree, it's a great read. I think it's a good, a very solid essay with and uh it's 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 importantly because it was sort of it sort of started this whole this wave of critique of the book like that sort of got the ball rolling in this direction which has been a big part of discussions of the book ever since yeah i think i think the the stuff in this book um is so kind of shocking in the modern day context that you kind of need additional discussion about you know um, like those issues a little bit more anyway. Like if you were to, if you were to study this book now, it's, it's so, you can't ignore, it's so surprising and it's so, um, you know, like conspicuous that you, you can't not devote some time to also discuss the depictions of the Africans. You can't ignore. And Africa in general. It's true. Like and now, it, like reading the book in the current year, you can't ignore things like the fact that the N word is used fairly often. That you know, like, like savage I, in terms like savage and yeah, the, or, the descriptions that are like kind of specifically tailored to really emphasize blackness and darkness yeah, and yeah. looking like a contorted mask and yeah like, even i think in one of the quotes i read he said they made horrid faces yeah you know, and like said, they communicate in grunts and things yeah. like that the fact that very few african characters have lines only only like one or two 
Although one of the most famous lines in the book is given by a black character, the famous right. Mr. Kurtz, he dead. Which I think that um, in the essay, uh, Chinua Achebe was saying that he, it's like, it's like a discrepancy in the book because the characters are portrayed as not even knowing English. And then when yeah, it suits... Yeah, because it's phonetically rendered out. It's like Mista is spelled like yeah. M-A-S-T-A-H. Like it's phonetically rendered as like someone who doesn't fully like have like a full mastery of the language which is a, it's it's also interesting given that it's from an ESL author <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's true actually yeah. <laughs> yeah. ETL is the third language actually but uh no but no it's true like I think basically I think that a lot of the points are are, are entirely valid that that he makes that Achebe makes in the and, essay and he's not he's not criticizing the fact that the that Joseph Conrad was trying like he he understands that Joseph Conrad was trying to um, criticize imperialism through comparing um, like Africa to Europe and saying that they're on the sort same level. Sort of bringing level. Europe down. Yeah, to like he level, he understands so to speak. he understands that that. Um, that Joseph Conrad is saying that Europe is no better, but I think he takes issue with the fact that, oh, no better. So it was like it, that it's not a very uh, three-dimensional depiction of like African people or Africa in the first place. And... It's not. It's well, it, I, I, and like, I, th I think the, criti the criticism that like the black characters don't get the sort of rounded three-dimensionality of, of Marlowe and Kurtz is entirely valid and true and i think that well obviously uh so like i think it's a valid critique and and i think the book definitely does uh engage in uh stereotypes uh, that were very much common at at the time uh and it doesn't i would say that you know i think probably you know joseph conrad if you were to bring him to the present day we could we, we would call him racist yeah. Just like we would call almost everyone Anyone. from that time, from 1899, right? And I think that you can say that Conrad, unfortunately, doesn't really rise above the standards of his time, at least not by much. That, like, I so I think I think that those aspects of it are are valid. I do think that it's slight. It is um, slightly more complicated. I don't. It's not to say that I think any of Achebe's points are wrong per se, but I think that we can acknowledge they're correct while also saying like it's a bit more complicated than that. Uh, in the essay, Achebe mentions like that. You know, if anything, Marlowe is more. Uh, it depicts the white characters with e like even less charitably than the black characters, even when he uses stereotype. I think that's true. Like, I think that if you look at the book, the way he describes the black characters, he does use stereotype and in some and language that we wouldn't today. But I don't, I don't know. You can tell me if you agree or disagree. Mm -hmm. But I don't, it, it's almost like he doesn't, It's. I don't feel like a vitriol. No. In the way he describes yeah. black characters. Whereas he, I definitely do feel a, a strong vitriol in the way he describes most of the white characters. Almost all of them. He either describes incredible contempt or, at best, ambivalence. I I think um, like so, that yeah that makes that makes sense. I I get what you're saying. Um, like I agree, the vitriol is reserved for the Europeans. I yeah. think that it's 
but it's not that he like he, I think he also just the lack of um you know thinking of the black characters like as characters in their own right is definitely present as well yeah. and the comparison I would make is to like the female characters it's a in similar the book idea, are similar yeah. in that they're almost these um like archetypes or these symbols of what he thinks like a woman is but it's not it doesn't feel real yeah that or like the stereotype you can of say what you know a, a chaste and devoted woman is a you know sexy and exotic mistress like yeah. those are the kind of that's the kind of um depth that those characters have similarly you know, it's not malice, but it's like that kind of mis- misinformed. Uh, Basically, he buys into the stereotypes of his time. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. I would say that that that's the, a fair reading of it. And and unfortunately, I think, well, hope like I hope this is not good, but I think it's kind of unavoidable for someone who, you know, he's he's not he didn't grow up there. He's not part of the culture. He doesn't no. really have a proper. He spent, a few, he spent a few months which, in the Congo. Yeah, which he, he can't probably, really observe it properly. He's not coming into it with the right mindset. Yeah. He's not he one of the them. He the languages. You know, he probably so, didn't interact much. Yeah, so like Joseph Conrad was kind people. of set to fail by, you know, writing about a whole like race of people without really engaging with them, um, you know, just on a base level as someone that he could even empathize truly with. Like he was never, he never re- quite reached that point no i mean argue yeah i mean there's there is at least a couple moments that um there's a couple moments where you could argue that that actually he does but on that point i would before that i would say that like we, we were talking about this a bit earlier like i th- yeah i think conrad he, he he wrote the book from his own perspective of a of an, a european interloper who visited the congo and was horrified by what he saw and i don't think he yeah you're right, i don't think he had the 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 mental resources to give what we would consider an appropriate three-dimensional rounded um portrayal of a congolese person because that was just not he i don't think it was within his capabilities given uh so it's all it's i don't know would it have been better if he tried i mean he did did he even try because i don't know because it's it's like he 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 thinks that what's happening is terrible but he doesn't think of them each as like their own individual person with their own yeah. you know thoughts and intelligence and you know ind- individualistic qualities like he kind of it's like it's like they're animals a little bit like he does liken one of the helmsmen or something to like a dog in breeches yeah. and like that he kind learned of how to operate how a ship yeah it was as if like a dog was wearing breeches yeah, yeah. And, it, and it's like one if, of the more if a dog passages yeah if a dog is suffering you still feel their pain and you still yeah. feel bad but you don't view them as an equal that's kind yeah. of the level that i was interpreting you know, had, yeah you know no, i think you're right i think you're right that passage sort of belies the uh the attitudes that that people at the time in europe had towards african people right like yeah. you might well be concerned for their well-being or not want them to suffer but yeah that doesn't necessarily mean you view them as an equal although yeah, or like as a full it's interesting it's interesting right that at, in some level, in the level of the subtext, he does. Right. At least you can make a good case that that's one of the, the subtexts, is that he does see them as equal. It's just that the white characters are putting on this facade of being better. But 
he de- but in the way he writes about the African characters, Conrad showing that in a sense he, you know, just you know, he just doesn't. He's in, he has this you know maybe we would say like internalized or he has this attitude like even it was so dominant like he can't fully escape it even if he yeah. even if he kind of disagrees with it at a fundamental level he doesn't go be above and beyond on the level of the more everyday right like say. you can you can stand for causes and things like you can be pro this or anti that but it doesn't it doesn't mean that you have a perfect understanding of that group and that you're completely immune to you know prejudices like people who are like oh i i voted for obama and they're like (laughs) and they're like they've got you know racist prejudiced um you know subconscious beliefs maybe even not as subconscious as they may think but they still are like i'm not racist i i have lots of you know i mean if you and if you think about someone living in his time like that wasn't even a concern like people wouldn't even try to defend themselves against being racist. Yeah. I don't even think the word was really like. I don't even think people even used the term racist. Because if that was a term, it then. would already show a condemnation of of being yeah, that. Yeah, it was just so in like deeply ingrained into society. Like people, like no one would get offended if you said like, "Wow, you're being very prejudiced against Africans." Like your average person at that time would be like, "Yeah, and," <laughs> like I, uh, you know. Uh, but and and the, the sad thing is that that Conrad, even though he can see very pure, like deep and on the on the deepest level, he does sort of acknowledge like a fundamental equality, and he is scathing in his critiques of European civilization. But he does at the um, what I would argue is more of a everyday or surface level, uh, does does uh, reproduce and and sort of you might say perpetuate some of the problematic attitudes of his time. He doesn't fully. He doesn't fully escape them. Right, yeah. right. There, there's like this broad strokes like ideology and yeah. then, you know. There's the specifics. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't apply. Maybe he didn't see that that a lot of his themes from the book logically lead to a condemnation of the sorts of language and attitudes that he himself would have held. Would have held. Right. So, yeah, I mean, that's. That's where we landed on that. That's where I've landed. I yeah. think we're a pretty similar place, I guess. Yeah, I think so too. Where we essentially agree with a lot of Achebe's points, um, but but acknowledge that it's more complicated than that. Yeah. So where, where so where where does Heart of Darkness stand in 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 the current year? Still a classic, or is the problematic stuff too much? And. Is that would, even worth asking? Like, <laughs> well, okay, you know what? Can I? I just, I just need to read this quote that I read to you earlier, um, off mic. Wow, revealing the secrets. But this the, is how the sausage gets made. The novelist. Oh, is it Carl or Carol? It's C A R Y L. Oh. I don't know, but I. Think I would it's say a, Carol. Carol, but I think it's male. I think it's a guy. You do. I'm not sure though. Um, Carol. Carol Phillips. Carl, don't Carol come after Phillips. us if you're if you're <laughs> Carl, Carl Phillips. Don't fans come after us. <laughs> stated that um, Achebe is right to the African reader. The price of Conrad's eloquent denunciation of colon- colonization is the recycling of racist notions of the quote dark continent and her people. Those of us who are not from Africa may be prepared to pay this price, but this price is far too high for Achebe. That kind of helped me understand it a little bit. It's like. Yeah. 
no one's saying that Joseph Conrad uh, believed like that it's it's him saying all of this stuff and that and that he, and that actually the message of the book is racist like as yeah. as the core um, yeah, I meaning don't, of it yeah I don't I think that would be a pretty hard argument to justify yeah. right it's just saying that in order to write this full thing with this core message he had to kind of sacrifice some well, I don't even know, you know if he had not, to, not, but he didn't have he wound to, up. but he, he wound up in order to tell this story. And because he wanted to tell the story of like within this location, yeah. with these Dealing elements with in it, Africa and he, the Congo. Un- he had to incorporate things that I guess he had wasn't... to because of his own mental Be- Yeah, because of the story he wanted to tell, he had to include things that he wasn't actually perfectly equipped to portray. Yeah. yeah. But I think that's yeah. a fair, that's, I think that's a very fair, um, reading because it doesn't completely it doesn't excuse the problematic aspects but it also um it also puts the book in its proper context right um yeah and i guess there's something to be said about like a lot of what we were talking about earlier and me especially going on way too long about it because as you could if you couldn't tell i'm still i i'm a big fan of this book even though i acknowledge the problems with it um you know the way that you know africa and the people there are almost sort of reduced to the level of like a literary device. Yeah, that's what I to a symbol thought as well. Like that Africa is a symbol of the deepest sort of primal aspects of humanity, which is of course a stereotype. Um, uh, it is where we evolve, but like, you know, the idea that it's like more primitive is obviously problematic. And it's like using this as to get in like, by going there, it's like a metaphor for going into the deepest, darkest recesses mm-hmm. of. I can see your, how the implication yourself. might rub people the wrong way, even if it is like an elegantly done, like literary meta, like device and metaphor. Yeah, it, it's 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 almost like that tension of like the metaphor is so I think so um, uh, gri- gripping and so enthralling and engaging, yet it has very sort of problematic aspect. It's that makes the book even more interesting in a way. Yeah, you know? it's it's definitely like the um, despite the controversy, it's no less popular than it was. Maybe. I I don't think yeah, yeah, I think that's fair to say. Like it's still it's still taught in in classes than none that you took apparently, but yeah, no. <laughs> uh, but I think it's still pretty widely taught in in English classes, literature classes. I think it's still considered a classic, like a modern classic um yeah even despite the sort of problematic aspects i think there's enough there's enough of uh because the central themes are so timeless and will always be uh always be sort of uh what's the word i'm looking for always be um important and always be um applicable yeah because of that like it's always relevant in always a relevant yeah. that was the word i was looking for um the book will probably never go away because of that fact well also going back to the thing about it being very ambiguous that that helps it stay timeless too. yes like the this continual battle for what the actual meaning is and all these different interpretations of it lets it live on through the eyes of scholars forever yeah so and ordinary yeah. readers like you and me yeah that's right <laughs> not, neither was really a scholar <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely not so but there there we have there it there we have it finally heart of darkness the beast is conquered 
I never have to read this book again now. Yeah. But, might but anyway. now, because I understand it more, like a, tons more than when I started it, maybe I will return to it and it'll be less torturous for me. I'll probably read it again. I, I really <laughs> love this book. I know I said that about the Hunger Games, so that statement doesn't yeah. have too much yeah, weight. But this one, this one I really do, and and uh, I read it at a formative time, um, and and I really do love this one like a lot. Nothing um, says light Christmas reading like Heart <laughs> of Darkness. So I, I, I think we would both say it was worth it. Or is that what we do at the end? Yes, we, yes. Yeah. Was it worth it? Yeah, yes, of course. Yeah. Yep. Very much so. If if only for the obviously for more than this, but you know. Just to say that you read it, you know, <laughs> it's a classic, it's short, you know, yeah. it, it's it's not going to take up too much of your time. It's extremely unique. So it'll take up more of your time than most books. It's like, well, yes, it, absolutely. But it, it is. It is very unique. Yeah. There's really not, I haven't really read a book like it since, I don't think. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you can be part of the conversation if you come check it out and see what it's about. If you if you this if you being... take the journey as if you will up the river oh. of it's a, of those pages. <laughs> oh my god! All right, this is uh, this is being next? cut. Moby Dick. Yes, okay, we, are, we are absolutely not doing Moby Dick. We are. Why doing... don't we do like things fall apart? Nope. That would be fun. Oh, oh wait. Yeah. Oh, we could. Be... I've read it before, but um, yeah. we could do it again. But um, I want to do Middlemarch. Oh yeah, Middlemarch. That'll probably. Be or fun. we could do Remains of the Day. One of those two. Okay, middle March moments <laughs> of the day. Tune in to our next episode to figure out which find one out which to find one. out which it'll be. This has been. Wait, what was the name of the pod that we just came up with? Um, oh my god! <laughs> ah, you're gonna have to edit this and and sort through two and a half hours to find. Well, no, wasn't it? Listeners listening in the future, it took us past episode three to come up with a title. But we did it. We just don't you'll, remember what you'll it's see called. It. You'll see it when you look at the show. You'll see yes, it has a title. Right. And I actually don't know if, did we mention that Heart of Darkness was the book we were doing today? Or did we did just start talking about it? not. Okay. Well, we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.